and I'm thinking to myself, I'm in he- I'm in pain from the top of my head to my toes. Mm-hmm. I'm popping pills just to sit here in this meeting. I'm watching myself on film block this DN, and I'm thinking to myself, I used to want to kill that guy, and I got no rage left in me whatsoever. Yeah. I said, what am I doing here? Mm-hmm. There's a thousand places I'd rather be than be here right now. And I've been thinking this is glorious. Meanwhile, this coach back here, God bless him. But if I walked out of here today, he'd just find a younger guy to plug into my spot. Mm-hmm. Like no thing at all. What the fuck am I doing here? Mm-hmm. And in that moment, I knew I was done. Yeah, good. You know, it was I, time. It was time. Welcome to Living 4D with Paul Check. Today's guest is ex-NFL starter, Evan Britton. Evan is a nuts and bolts guy, the author of The Evan Flow, Basic Tools to Transform Your Life, and the host of The Evan Flow Podcast, where he shares how his grueling training on the gridiron and his yogic training in the Anusara and Vishnu Ghosh lineages brought him through excruciating emotional and physical pain to love and serve. If you enjoyed today's episode, please consider leaving us a five-star rating and a warm review at the top of the show page on Spotify or at the bottom of the show page if you are listening on Apple Podcast. Your opinions matter and your ratings help us to grow and help more people to be healthy, find freedom of body and mind, and to live their dreams. A big thank you to our sponsors by Optimizers, Paleo Valley, Organifi, and our newest sponsors, Ned and Wild Pastures. Their support is essential in producing this podcast, and we hope you will show your support by visiting them online and trying all the amazing products they produce. And now here is Paul talking with Eb on his journey of warrior to wise man. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Living 4D. Today, our topic is warrior to wise man with Eben Britton. And even if you've heard a podcast with Evan before, which many of you probably have, I guarantee you this will be a unique one. Eben and I are going to take a journey through the archetypes from warrior to king to wise man, and I'm going to use a little check life process alchemy as part of our podcast just for fun, and the goal of that is to sort of help each of you find yourself in Eb's journey and look at the archetypal elements of the things we're going to discuss so that you can actually kind of join in the process with us. So, uh, Eb, it's lovely to have you here. It's great to be here, man. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Thanks for driving down from LA and coming and hanging out with us here. It's always fun to do a live recording. Yeah. So, today I'd like to focus on how the warrior goes through the hero's journey and ultimately becomes a wise man or a wise woman that carries the wisdom home to help others and to help them get prepared for their own hero's journey, which is also about helping people wake up to the things that we need to see often for our own survival. Um, From our discussions together and what I've learned about your life path as expressing your warrior archetype through football, you had your own hero's journey through the events that took place in your career. So um, I'd love it if you can share your process and and what you went through. um, Because you described to me how, you know, the events of your career ultimately ended up in, in, in somewhat of a crisis of self where you lost your identity, you know? And I think, you know, as as hard as that is to go through 
it ultimately opens the door for the unveiling of of the of a greater expression of ourselves and and you don't know it when you're getting stripped of your ego you know it feels like a death but then what comes out the other side you you know most people look back and and it turns out to be a, some kind of a blessing that they didn't realize at the time Man, it's so good to be here with you. Thank you. I feel like I'm hanging out with Master Yoda, too, you know? <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> it's like I came to Dagobah, and like I landed, I found Yoda's hut. It's more than a hut, but... Um, <laughs> you're, you're hanging out with a crazy guy from a farm on Vancouver Island. <laughs> yeah, man, the mad wizard. Yeah, something like that. Um, no, but I, I truly appreciate being here and just coming in and connecting with you and just... Just seeing you for the first time, we just dove right into stuff that I'm super fascinated about. So I would have to say that it all started, I was born in New York City um, to two very, I was very blessed to come into a family to be birthed from two parents who are very holistically minded people. Food is medicine move your body to take care of it, um, drink plenty of water, use whatever natural means are available before going to see a doctor. Yeah, I just say that as sort of the blessing of a really solid foundation that I didn't even realize would serve me yes. on my journey. So parents got divorced when I was seven. Mm, that's painful. It was very painful very difficult very dark there was a lot of alcoholism a lot of um chaos in my childhood and so in that my brother and i would spend the entire summers up at my grandparents house in connecticut and uh i was about i must have been eight years old and it was the morning i was in the morning i was eating my cereal Morning news was on, and they were showing clips of the Jets and the Giants in training camp. And I remember so clearly watching these warriors in this ballet of violence and <laughs> like knocking into each other and running across the field in this armor. And I thought to myself then, I was like, that's what I'm going to do when I grow up. That's who I'm going to be. I'm going to be one of those warriors on that gridiron. Mm. And my mom would never let me play. Really? Yeah, she was always worried I was going to get hurt. Mm. And so finally, from the time that seed was planted when I was eight years old, finally by my freshman year of high school, we had moved out to California when I was 10. So a couple years later, I'm going into ninth grade, and I just said, Mom, I got to, this is what I want to do. I want to play football. And with the help of my dad, helped to convince her that this is, this was a good move for me. And the moment I stepped foot on the football field, it was just like this rocket ship to the moon. Yeah. How I carried myself, how I lived, mm -hmm. eat, breathe, sleep, football, being a warrior. Yeah. I was blessed with size, obviously. I was physically gifted mm -hmm. with the physical tools to do it. And then, unbeknownst to me at the time, I also had the psychological makeup of what it takes to succeed on the field. I was always the most violent player. <laughs> you know, 
I was always on film. You'd see me. There's Eb running down the sidelines with the running back 50 yards downfield, yeah. knocking guys over the pile, peeling guys off the, the running back and the receivers. It was just how I played. Yeah. Because I was getting this, this rage that was inside of me. Yes. I was getting it out, and I was getting it out in this place where I was being celebrated for it. Mm-hmm. And that carried me a long way. I mean, I got, I had full football, I had full ride scholarships to just about anywhere I wanted to go around the country. I ended up choosing the University of Arizona in Tucson because they had a creative writing program. Oh, cool. You were into creative writing. Yeah. Around, I, and one of the other blessings of my family is that it's full of athletes and artists. And so there was always this undertone of art throughout my football career. Like I always had it in the back of my mind, like when I'm done playing football, I'm going to be a writer. Mm, That's what I'm going to do. I want to tell stories. Went to U of A, continued to develop myself physically, um, started, was all American, captain, all Pac-10, the whole deal. Ended up leaving after my fourth year. I had redshirted my freshman season. So that means you just don't play. You basically do everything the team does, but right. you're still developing. So you're not going to get on the field. My redshirt freshman year, I'm starting at right tackle, end up being a, a starter for the next three years. And then I left early for the NFL for the draft. In 2009, I was drafted by the Jaguars, 39th overall in the second round. And, um, it just continued, you know, and my foot, my NFL career had a great rookie season, dominated, really started 15 of 16 games, missed one game with a sprained MCL. Mm. Um, and then the spring going into my second season, uh, we were in the last workout of before summer break, before we'd got two and a half weeks off before training camp started and we're in the weight room and we're doing these Kaiser squats. Have you ever seen those, the air pressure the machines? Machine, yeah, yeah. The Kaiser machine. So we're doing these Kaiser squats, putting a thousand pounds of pressure on our back and doing these explosive squat movements. And I'm kind of jacking around or just not focused. And I get in there to do my second set. I load up the machine. I drop down and I felt this like tube of toothpaste squirt in the top of my right butt cheek. Mm. And I came out of the machine and I was like, what the fuck just happened there? Yeah. I felt like I had been ripped in half and my torso had been put back on backwards. Mm. Did you blow a disc? I did. I L5 ruptured. L5S1? Yes, sir. Yeah. Ruptured L5S1. Wasn't really sure what had happened. It was so it was so unlike any injury that I've ever experienced. You know, I'd pulled muscles, torn my quad. I've done all of that. And uh, it was just different than anything I'd ever experienced. It was like all the power came out of my right leg. Yeah. So we went out to run sprints right after that. And of course, I'm a team leader. I'm trying to beat everybody in the sprints. I end up tearing my hamstring. Wow, yeah. Running the sprints. So afterwards, of course, now I'm beating myself up and I'm in this sort of shit storm of chaos of like my body's breaking down. I've just had an unbelievable spring. My teammates are calling me the golden child mm -hmm. because I could do no wrong. The coaches, I was the guy, you know. I'm starting at right tackle. And all of a sudden, we're about to go on break, and, I, and 
I feel like my legs have just been taken out from underneath me. Yeah. So I go into the training room. They do some tests. They're looking at the hamstring. Yeah, that's there. Then they lay me on my back and try to lift my leg up. And there's this excruciating, this lightning mm-hmm. bolt shock going down my right leg. That's, that's called a positive straight leg raise test. <laughs> yes. Yeah, exactly. And so the sciatic nerve is firing up. I can barely, I'm starting to feel the tingling in my toes on yeah. my right foot. And so anyway, long story short, I come back for training camp and I'm a shell of myself. Yeah. I'm a shell of the player that I was. And coaches are looking at me like, yeah, but what's going on, man? Like, what's the deal here? And I, you know, and through the training staff and everybody, it's like, oh, you ruptured a disc. So that season really consisted of me. I was at the train, I was at the facility in the training room by 6 a.m. every morning getting treatment, hot tub, cold tub, stem, ice, you know, different modalities, everything that they could do, um, dry needling, like mm. just like throwing the kitchen sink at this thing. Yeah. Just so that I could sit in the chair to watch film in the meetings. Right. Yeah. You know, it's a very painful injury. So I was doing that day in, day out and uh, really wearing myself thin. I was wearing a back brace and you know, starting to medicate with whatever I could get, pain pills, Adderall, anything I could do to just like fire up my body because mm-hmm. my right leg just wasn't working. I had completely lost the power in it. Yeah. And here I am starting at right tackle on a pro football team going against week in, week out, the fire-breathing dragons, as we call them, who are some of the best athletes in the world, the DNs. And uh, I'm doing my best. I'm, I'm competing. I'm, I'm doing everything I can. And then week eight, we're playing the Kansas City Chiefs. And about midway through the second quarter, we're on this outside zone block. And Kansas City plays this 3-4 defense. Back then, at least they did. And I've got this head-up tackle on me. And in this particular play, I'm punching through the outside shoulder of this guy working up to this linebacker. So I punch through this this D-end. I'm working up to the linebacker, and this tidal wave of bodies tangles up my feet. I end up coming to the ground. I land on my elbow, feel something happen. The dust settles, I stand up, and I realize my shoulder's dislocated. So I had subluxed my right shoulder. My, sub, my right shoulder had been subluxating since probably my sophomore year in high school. It would pop in, pop, at, pop out, pop back in. Yeah. And finally, it had just completely dislocated. So I pop it back in. We finish the drive, score a touchdown, come off to the sideline. I look at our trainer my guy Justin I say hey brother I just dislocated my shoulder I need you to get me a shoulder harness because we're about to go back in for a two-minute drill and he's looking at me like ah should I get the doc I'm like dude hurry the fuck up we've got about two minutes before I'm going to be back on the field so it was like a NASCAR tire change change (laughs) throw off my pads he wraps this harness around secures my shoulder back in throw my shoulder pads on i'm basically grabbing my helmet as we're running back on the field for this two minute drill right before the half two plays into the into the two minute drill i'm pass blocking i'm going against mike vrabel who's the head coach of the titans now he's just a legendary outside linebacker pass rusher I go to punch with my right arm. He swipes it 
it comes out of the socket again. Oh, boy. And now with the harness, I can't get it back in. Right. So it's stuck out. Yeah. And so I got to run off the field mid-series. My sub runs on, get onto the sideline, hit the bench. It took three team doctors about five minutes to get my shoulder back in. It was yeah. pretty, pretty intense scene. We're in Kansas City. It's loud as fuck. You can't hear yourself think. Yeah. They're like, Eb, can we get you inside, lay you on the table so that we can pop this thing back in? And I'm just like, fuck no, get it in. Get it in right now. Yeah. Finally, they grind it back in. Like, Eb, you're done for the day. Let's get you showered up. We'll get you some pain meds. Just take the, you know, take the rest of the day from the sidelines, basically. I do that, get showered. Uh, they gave me some Vicodin or something to to ease the pain. I throw a giant dip in and I'm make my way back out to the sidelines after halftime. And you know, I'm out there and I'm in a shoulder sling at this point. I'm thinking to myself, I'll be ready for next week. Mm-hmm. We're playing Dallas. I'll be good to go. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, after the game, going to see the team doc, and he says, "Eb." looks like you've got a torn labrum i can't i can't clear you to play you're gonna have to have season ending shoulder surgery like right away get Mm -hmm. this fixed and that was i always tell that story because that was the first time in my football career where a physical injury was taking me out of the game yeah and i was being sat down Mm -hmm. you know and i just burst into tears like my whole world has come crumbling down because this is who i am and like if I'm not the snarling, badass warrior on the football field, who am I? Right. You know. So I'm making all the calls, and I go and have the sur- the surgery uh, a couple weeks later. This guy, Doctor James Andrews, who's you know, he's a very famous orthopedic surgeon. Yeah, one of the best. He's probably he's considered to be maybe the best. Yeah. In fact, he was the one that taught. Bill Previte, who's mm. a surgeon that I used for over twenty years, and. Danny Way, he became Danny Way's doctor. Uh, many, I, I, he came right out of of Andrew's program. Uh-huh. He was trained by Andrews, and he's the best surgeon I've ever worked with. Yeah, I mean, I feel like Doctor Andrews done all the Hall of Fame quarterbacks. He's done the guys, you know, and he did a great job. Shoulder got fixed. Back was still fucked up. Of course, yeah you're exiled essentially when you're put on injured reserve they don't really want you in the building because like this thing of there's a deeper psychological thing happening of like not having injured guys hanging out with the team because it starts to just degenerate the psyche of the team if that makes sense well what happens is is it makes them think about their um perishability right exactly you know you you don't want warriors thinking about the potential cracks in their armor (laughs) exactly yeah so i'm on ir and i mean that's a podcast in in itself of what that was like sleeping in a chair for six weeks with my arm in a sling and you know taking pills and feeling the effects after you know very quickly during that time i experienced the deep my own deep sensitivity to opiates and opiate withdrawal. Mm. After three days of prescribed usage, I'm waking up at two o'clock in the morning with cold sweats and 
a knifing sensation in my gut and can't sleep and pain all over my body and which was really important though because cannabis became this healing modality that I could come to that would allow me the opportunity to have an experience of my pain without escaping my pain but it also allowed me to continue being a human or at least to settle into my humanness and also it helps alleviate pain yeah that season finish on ir we're going into the next year which would be my third season was the lockout so the owners the nfl owners were locking out the players because we couldn't come to terms on a collective bargaining agreement right I go back to the University of Arizona, finish my degree, get rehabbed there with my old college trainers. So my shoulder was great by the time I came back. Like I said, my back was still a mess. So we come back and it's training camp. We've missed the entire spring and we jump right into training camp after the lockout. Mm -hmm. They're plugging me back in, starting at right tackle. I could only go two or three plays before my right leg would completely go dead. Yeah. And after about the first week of training camp, my head coach, Jack Del Rio came to me and he said, Eb, um, you know, I'd had a number of epidurals at that time in in the disc, which did nothing. Mm, Yeah. Because you haven't fixed the problem yet. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And it takes some time. You know, that's not an easy fix. I've rehabbed more of them than you can count. And it was completely ruptured. So it wasn't just like a slip disc that could. No, it's called a sequestered disc. It blew the fluid right out. That's that feeling you had going into your hip. That burning sensation. Not only that, what a lot of people don't know, just for your education, um, the fluid that's in a disc is quite acidic. Right, yes. So once it squirts out, it can Mm -hmm. actually highly irritate the nerve root and it can cause scarring in that area, which leads to a lot of problems. Yeah, yeah. So it has to be very carefully rehabbed. And if a person doesn't know how to stretch the nervous system to keep it mobile, there's special techniques I use. It's called flossing that you actually can move the body in a certain way that it actually causes the nerve root to slide mm. back and forth through the foramina. Uh-huh. And if you don't do that, it'll scar down. Uh-huh. And then you can get shooters, lightning bolts down your leg and <clears throat> the nerve root can scar to the, to the bone. Mm. And it sets up a whole another layer of complications that can lead to a lot of pain. Yeah. Yeah. I experienced that. Yeah. Fly up to North to uh, North Carolina to Charlotte, have the surgery. I wake up out of surgery, and it's like somebody pulled the piece of glass out of the electrical circuit mm-hmm. system of my body. Yeah. Like all the pain had been gone. Good. It was like I had been fun for the last eighteen months. It was like I was waking up like with this mm-hmm. sensation constantly through my body. Yeah. And it was very difficult to do anything. I mean, even yoga was excruciatingly painful, you know. So I come out of the surgery, feel great, fly back to Jacksonville, get right into rehab. We were pretty aggressive with the rehab. And by week three or four, I was back in the starting lineup, now starting at left guard. During my time away, a guy who had stepped in at right tackle was doing a good job. We didn't really have a left guard. Our head coach, my old line coach, both came to me and they said, Eb, you know, when you were coming out of college, we all graded you as like a potential all-pro left guard. Like this could be a great spot for you. And I was up for it. Once again, 
You know, I was always one of the most violent guys. Mm. And left guard, you could talk about as like a fist fight in a phone booth. Because <laughs> you're in this tight quarters. I was a great, I am a great athlete. So putting me in there, I'm going against a heavier guy. And with my quickness and ability, like that could be a place that I could really flourish. And I felt that. Like I came back in, starting at left guard, was playing lights out. Best football of my life. Oh, good. So fast forward four or five weeks. Now we're in week eight, week nine. We're in Pittsburgh to play the Steelers. And I was actually supposed to start at right tackle that game. I'd been moving around a little bit. I wake up in the hotel room. I can barely get out of bed. Mm -hmm. And my back is seizing up. And I'm like shuffling to the bathroom. I got to like, you know, anchor myself on the sink to get down to the toilet. And I'm thinking to myself, it's fine. I'll get the, I'll pop the pills. I'll take the stuff. I'll be ready for game time. (laughs) And get to the stadium. I go right into the training room, say, hey man, my back is locked up. I don't know what's going on. I need you to like, start working on me, get me warmed up, throw a heat pack on it. They've got the Theragun. He's digging his elbow in, doing all the stuff. After about 45 minutes of treatment, I can barely push myself up off the table. Mm -hmm. My back is just completely spasmed. Yeah. It took about another month and three MRIs to discover that there was an infection in the disc. Yeah, that can happen after surgery. Thankfully, it wasn't staph or MRSA. It was a low virulence bacteria. So that's why there was no fever. There was just like this very acute back spasming. One of the problems with those infections, I don't know if you know this, but the infection can actually eat up the disc material. Uh And so you end up bone on bone, and and that leads to the next level of complication. Yeah. So a miracle here, Paul. Yeah. I get put on these, these eight weeks of intravenous antibiotics. A nurse would come to my house and inject me with this stuff every day. And little by little, it started, I could barely walk around my house before my legs would completely give out. I'd have to hold myself up over the sink and wash my hands and was very immobilized. And little by little, I'd take longer and longer walks. I I lived like a 10-minute walk to the beach. So I'd start walking to the end of the street then my legs would give out and i'd shuffle my way back home and then i'd walk to the end of the next street and then my legs would give out and i'd walk my way back home and then finally i was walking up and down the beach again before my legs would give out on me you know what you needed huh you needed me yeah i did i did paul i, wore, I needed you bad, all though. sorts of guys like you <laughs> yeah no i needed you brother yeah um and it was you know looking at it uh, of course and it was the greatest education of my life well, of course it is know? there's no teacher like the pain teacher baby. Uh, yeah that's true <laughs> that's absolutely true hello to all of you thank you for joining me on my podcast and contributing to making the world a better place each day I'm so excited to have you on this amazing journey with me. I wanted to share one of my strategies for being strong, healthy, mentally sharp, and productive each day. My family and I love Organifi sunrise to sunset combination, and it's never hard to get our kids to enjoy these healthy products, and guests at our rainbow workshops absolutely love them too. 
The Sunrise to Sunset Kit helps transform your entire day in three simple steps. A detoxifying morning reset, an afternoon energy boost, and a nighttime relaxation tea all packed with superfoods your body will love. The kit comes with a built-in bundle savings, and for a limited time, it also comes with a 30-day supply of pure and effective natural brain-boosting blend absolutely free. Your Sunrise to Sunset kit includes green juice. Reset your body in the morning with 11 detoxifying superfoods, including ashwagandha, an excellent herb that helps your body handle stress better. You'll love the delicious taste and your body will love the rush of exotic organic micronutrients. Green juice promotes balanced cortisol levels and helps manage stress levels. It's perfect for weight management and it helps detox your body of harmful toxins and we all know how important that is today. Organifi Red Juice is a caffeine-free energy boost provided by nature's five best antioxidant-rich berries plus four powerful adaptogens, including cordyceps and rhodiola, to promote natural and sustained stamina and endurance. Red Juice offers natural energy boost without caffeine, a high concentration of antioxidants to protect against free radical damage and inflammation, and a low-sugar sweet berry taste. Gold Juice can be taken hot or cold in the evening, and Gold Juice eases your body into a calm, relaxed state with nine soothing superfoods and adaptogens like reishi mushrooms, turmeric, and ginger, all in a delicious nighttime tea. Get the rest and sleep that you need. Gold Juice offers incredible taste and aroma, promotes recovery while you rest, and is naturally calming with zero negative side effects. Plus, you get the travel packs of Pure included for a limited time with your Sunrise to Sunset kit. Clear your mind with this brain-boosting blend. Pure is made with natural compounds that help repair, protect, and feed your brain cells while addressing the gut-brain axis. Organifi Pure supports improved digestion plus focus and clarity. Organifi Pure stimulates brain-derived neurotropic factor to help build new neural networks and keep your brain young. It supports learning, memory, and enhances cognitive function. Get your Sunrise to Sunset kit and your bonus pack of Organifi Pure by going to Organifi.com, that's O-R-G-A-N-I-F-I.com forward slash C-H-E-K-20. And on checkout, get 20% off with your Living4D discount code CHECK20, all caps. That's capital C, capital H, capital E, capital K, 20. Enjoy. Finally, one third season, I miss, you know, two thirds of the season because of this back, this infection in the disc come back. They do an MRI after all the antibiotics have, have done their thing and the infection's totally gone. And they realized that the antibiotics had actually somehow, something had happened where it worked like retreading a tire. So my disc was totally intact. That's very unusual. It's a miracle. It is because the cellular turnover time of a spinal disc is 500 days. Mm. That means if you come to me with a disc injury and we do everything right, it's 500 days before that disc material heals itself because it has no blood supply. So uh-huh. it has to get it gets fed by osmosis and diffusion. Yeah. So it's very slow healing. So what you've just said, I've never even heard of happening before. Yeah, and the doctor even said, he said, it's a miracle. I don't know how it happened, but good news for you is it's like a retread tire. 
Yeah, well, that's, I, I don't even have words for that except great spirit. So he came back the next year as a new owner, a new head coach. I honestly, I needed another year to get yes, my body back. You do. You're exactly right. <laughs> and one of the things is good or bad, when you're playing in the NFL, you're not afforded that type of time. No, I know. You know? Yeah. So I'm right back into the fold. I'm starting. I'm moving around from left guard to right tackle. The head coach, the new head coach and I are weirdly just juxtaposed in everything. Mm. Like we just didn't, we didn't mesh. Like yeah. he didn't like me. I didn't like him. He, every time I talked to him, he was sort of giving me some attitude, attitude, some idea about what he thought was right or what I should be doing. Of course, as it would happen, week one of that season, we're playing the Minnesota Vikings, and I'm starting at left guard, and I get a guy thrown into my left ankle, and I get a low high ankle sprain. And the team doctor is telling me it's a two to three week recovery. I get a second opinion with my agent. That guy's saying, you're lucky you don't need surgery. This is a six to eight week recovery. They're telling me I'm milking the injury. So I'm back in two weeks, three weeks. We're going against the Cincinnati Bengals. I'm starting at left guard, playing against an all-pro D tackle, Geno Atkins, and he just fucking destroyed me. Because I couldn't push off. I no, couldn't yeah, move to the no right. Foundation. Can't fire a cannon from a canoe, buddy. <laughs> exactly. Exactly right. And so I get benched at halftime. And they say, Eb, you need some more time to recover. We got to get you back full strength. I say, okay. After the game, he tells the media that my spot's up for grabs. Oh, God. So I'm like, okay, motherfucker. I see you. I get it. It's like halfway through the season, we're going into the bye week and we get the big spiel. Like we're going to, you know, we're going to keep doing things the same. We're going to keep working the way we've been working. And we're all looking at each other like, dude, we're one in seven. But he's like, you know, some of you guys who have been starting, we're going to, we're going to start shaking up the lineup because, you know, some of you are the problem. So I was one of the guys I ended up getting benched. And this is my contract year. It's my fourth year in the Jags. And it just completely crushed me. That year was a disaster for everybody. Head coach is fired. Everybody's fired. I'm a free agent. And uh, at that point, after four seasons in the NFL, I mean, I came into my NFL career thinking, I'm going to be here for 10 years. That's what a lot of guys, uh, offensive linemen in particular, it's like 10 years is the gold standard. You get 10 years, that's a Warriors legacy. You leave, you know. After four years, I was so just run ragged, exhausted, over it, heartbroken, soul crushed. My confidence had just been totally wiped out. You know, and confidence is everything. Yeah. As an athlete, even more so as an offensive lineman. I mean, if you're not, if you're coming to the line with any doubt in your heart, you're fucked. You're in trouble. You're in trouble. You know, so I made some phone calls. I talked to one of my teammates, Brad Meester. He was a 14-year veteran, played center for the Jags. Uh, I said to him, Brad, Brad, I think I'm fucking done, man. I don't think I can do this anymore. And he said to me, Eb, I think that every year. (laughs) (laughs) And he's like, I just come back one year at a time, take it one day at a time, 
and I find something that I love about this game. Find something that I love that I can hang my hat on. And it's just one day at a time. And then next thing I know, I've gotten through another season. He's like, give it a shot somewhere else. Maybe you sign on somewhere else. You find your love for the game again. You know, and if not, great. You know that your time in football is over. And so I really took that advice. I had a couple workouts. I flew out to Seattle. The Seahawks worked me out. They weren't really, they weren't ready to sign me. I flew back to Jacksonville just about the next day. I flew to Chicago and the Bears were working me out. Went in for a workout. They wanted to sign me right away. And honestly, I'm getting the call from my agent. They're walking me up to the the front office where I'm going to sign a contract for one season with the Bears. And I'm in tears. Because I'm just like, can I do this? Yeah. Do I have this? Yeah. I was ready to be done, and now here's a team that wants me. And their GM, uh, I forget his name now, he's an incredible GM. He said to me, Ed, you know, we've been a fan of you since you came out of college. And I know last season was not you because you were dealing with these injuries. Like, we really think you could bring a lot of value to this team if you're in, if you're, if you want it. I said, yeah. I mean, at that time, I fucking needed the money, honestly. Mm, yeah. And I thought to myself, well, let's just do what Brad said and give it one day at a time. And that season, so it was my fifth year in the NFL, first year in Chicago, I really found my love for football again. I became, I, I locked up a position as like the swing tackle, so the sixth man. It wasn't a starting spot, but it gave me this opportunity to be highly involved with the team not to mention i carved out a nice role for myself as this monster tight end so i'd come in 25 to 30 plays a game and i just got to give it everything i had for 25 30 plays without the stress of being a starter and having to prepare like a starter Mm -hmm. and i can mentor the young guys they drafted two rookies who ended up starting on that offensive line and it was just this really magical year. The Chicago Tribune wrote this whole article about me at the end of the season, how the offense was 25% more productive when I was in the game than when I was out of it. And it felt like last game of the season, we're playing Green Bay, the right tackle goes down and I step in and I played, you know, three and a half quarters of the last game and just dominated at right tackle and really like felt the joy of football again. Yeah. And then came back for a sixth year and it was like all the magic had dispersed that season. I got cut after the last preseason game, which was the first time I'd ever been cut, which was another heartbreaking experience because I had a tendency of falling into this thing of like these, this is my family. Mm-hmm. You know, these football teams are my family. I die on the field for these guys. Yeah. Week one, I'm in my apartment in Chicago watching the game. 3-0 linemen, three starters go down with injuries, and the GM's calling me by the first half saying, Eb, where are you? We got to get you back here. <laughs> yeah. And I'm like laughing. I'm laughing my ass off. Like, yeah, you do. Yeah. <laughs> so I end up signing back with the Bears. I mean, this is sort of – I always I, – I can't tell the football story without telling all the little details because then it's just – doesn't give the full picture. Well, I think most people probably have no idea what really goes on inside of these things. You know, 
I've been a consultant to so many professional teams and have had to, you know, stand up for the players because when I have a guy like you and they're trying to rush them back, I'm like, you got a choice here. You got a few games out of this guy or you got a career out of this guy. What do you want? And I hate to say it, but every time they say, I don't give a shit about the guy's career. I want to win this next game. Exactly. And I'm like, you realize that, you know, some of these injuries could be permanent damage. I mean, yeah. I'm talking about a leg that's paralyzed and doesn't work and shit like that. And they don't give a shit. And I've, I've had some very heated arguments with general managers and team medical doctors and God bless you, man. You know, I got to the point where I just stopped having any interest in working for professional sports teams. Cause I just got oh, so sure. tired of the bullshit. Yeah, absolutely. So by week, it's my last season in Chicago, sixth year, last season in football. By week, flying back to LA with my family. My high school's retiring my jersey. After the ceremony, I'm doubled over in pain. Mm. Like throwing up, feel like I have to shit, can't shit. It's like knifing sensation just above my right hip in my gut. My entire family, literally my entire family is there and I can't get out of bed. Those are symptoms of spinal cord compression. Well, so finally it's the day we're supposed to leave to fly back to Chicago and I look at my wife and I say, I don't think I can get on the plane. Like something's wrong here. So we go to the emergency room checking me out, listening to what I have to say. They take me right to a, a CT scan or say, it wasn't an MRI. It was something quick. Mm -hmm. They're like, you have a ruptured appendix. You oh, need, to, boy. You need a, an immediate emergency appendectomy right now. Mm, yeah, you can get those same symptoms from a L5S1 Interesting. Uh, disc injury or if the vertebra shifts and pinches the spinal cord, it can give those symptoms as well. That makes sense. I lose about 25, 30 pounds. And uh, call up the team, tell them everything that happened. Finally, I get back after a week in the hospital. And they say, yep, you know, just work on getting your body back. I couldn't even really work out at the time because yeah. they wanted to make sure this bacteria was out of my blood. Yeah. You know, part of the story that I've talked about elsewhere, which was in a documentary called Take Your Pills on Netflix about Adderall. Oh, yeah was, you know, during my back injury, I started taking Adderall because it would lift me up out of this, this haze that yeah. I was in. So I got, I went through this whole process of getting a therapeutic use exemption for Adderall. And the reason I bring that up is I come back and I'm out of my Adderall prescription and God forbid I would sit through a meeting, you know, sober <laughs> <laughs> at that stage. <laughs> and I come back from the, uh, the appendix, start working out. Slowly but surely, I'm worked back into practicing again. There's maybe four games left of the season. And I was sitting there in films, and I'm watching the film, and I'm thinking to myself, I'm in, he I'm in pain from the top of my head to my toes. Mm -hmm. I'm popping pills just to sit here in this meeting. I'm watching myself on film block this D end and I'm thinking to myself, I used to want to kill that guy and I got no rage left in me whatsoever. Yeah. I said, what am I doing here? Mm -hmm. There's a thousand places I'd rather be than be here right now. 
And I've been thinking this is glorious. Meanwhile, this coach back here, God bless him. But if I walked out of here today, he'd just find a younger guy to plug into my spot. Mm-hmm. Like no thing at all. What the fuck am I doing here? Mm-hmm. And in that moment, I knew I was done. Yeah, good. You know, It was I, time. It was time. So at the end of the season, I get this letter from the NFL saying I'd failed a drug test and I was going to serve a four-game suspension going into the next season. And so that was really this moment of the universe telling me, eh, it's okay to be done. Yeah. It's okay, man. You know, because I had had this idea in my head, I'm a fucking warrior, dude. Mm-hmm. I will die on the football field before I quit or I stop playing, mm-hmm. you know? And finally I was there at the light at the end of the tunnel and it was like God, the universe, spirit going, eh, it's done, dude. It's mm-hmm. all good. We can be done now. Mm-hmm. We've done everything we could do in this game. Mm-hmm. So I got the call from my agent. He said, yeah, Chicago's not going to sign you back. I said, okay, that makes sense. So we decided, I said, you know what? Let's move my family back to LA. We bought a house and just let's set up headquarters. We'll see what happens. I don't know what's next. Yeah. Uh, I had a few calls from the Falcons and the Bills and they wanted to fly me out to work out and I'm staying at my in-laws in Pasadena and I'm thinking to myself, man, I can't even go to the airport to get on that airplane. Like I was so done. Yeah. You know? So I'm sitting around looking and, and throughout my football career, I kept these stacks of journals and, uh, my wife goes, well, now it's time to write your book. Yeah. There you go. (laughs) You know? And so I said, oh, yeah, I forgot about that. And so my football agent handed me to a literary agent. And we started working on this book proposal, Life in the Trenches, the, the, uh, you know, the daily grind of the NFL offensive linemen. Pitched it around to publishers. Got a lot of good feedback. Everybody either wanted more of a red carpet story or like this tell-all, nitty-gritty. And I wasn't doing that. I was just trying to tell my experience. Sort of like Charles Bukowski playing offensive line type story. And uh, that turned into this the first article which sort of jettisoned me into my life after football which was for sportsillustrated.com called What Does It Take to Stay in the NFL? You Don't Want to Know. Mm. And I just talked about the experience of playing offensive line, dealing with injuries, the pill protocols, my experience with cannabis and Adderall, and the mental, the depression, the anxiety, all of this stuff that I was dealing with. And it got a lot of exposure. I had a lot of teammates calling me up saying, yeah, dude, thank you so much. This is like my daily experience. I appreciate that you put this into words and put this out there. I had an old trainer calling me going, yo, what the fuck are you doing? You threw us all under the bus. (laughs) You know, and I thought, man, I'm not, I didn't, first of all, I didn't use anybody's names. Yeah. And I'm not putting you at fault. I'm just calling attention to a system that's broken. You know, you're telling the facts of the facts. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, that, that article was important because it really started me on this journey of sharing my experience, sharing the truth of my experience in an effort to bring light to dark places. Yeah. 
Uh, and that led me into cannabis advocacy and this documentary, Take Your Pills, talking about Adderall, and uh, which was really interesting. And I recommend anybody who who's interested in just the mind and pharmaceuticals to take a look at this documentary because it's really fascinating. What's um, the title of the documentary again? Take Your Pills. Take Your Pills, yeah. Um, and that was the beginning of my life after football, which soon thereafter, I found myself completely broken down. Yeah, I don't doubt it. <laughs> you know? Um, it's a hard road. It was. It was. It was a hard road, but I don't think I would have had it any other way. <laughs> That's how you uh, have the spiritual growth opportunity. When you're in this process of having to deal with your own confrontation of yourself and 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 ultimately cope with all this stress, not only the the uh, you know the mindset, the persona, and the embodiment of the warrior, and then the disablement and the disintegration because you see inside of yourself you always have a clear sense of what you're capable of so your mind knows who ebb is and how ebb can play and what ebb can do but then when you're out there expressing that your body won't it's kind of like a golfer who's yeah. got the perfect swing in his mind but his body can't do it uh-huh. right yeah so the next thing you know, the golfer's like pissed off because it's yeah. like, how can this be? You know, my, I, I, I know exactly what's supposed to be happening, but my body won't do it, right? Mm. So there's this progressive destruction of the physical expression of the psychological ideal of yourself. Yeah. And so there's a, there's a progressive stripping of one's sense of self, right? So the question is, as you were going through the process of coping with this, you, there will be tendencies like the, how one relates to the use of pills mm. or alcohol yeah. or marijuana or how anger gets involved or how it affects our relationships with family members, with wives, with kids, with everything, right? So the question is, did you ever recognize strategies or mechanisms, positive or negative, that were imprints from your family? Mm. In other words, would you recognize how your father would have reacted in that situation or your grandfather or somebody in your family tree the, the same way people that have uh, a line of alcoholics tend to resort to alcohol? People uh -huh. that have tendencies toward violence find themselves acting out violence even though it was terribly traumatic to them when it happened to them. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. During it, it was all... You know, it's taken me a long time to get to the place where I recognize that I come from a family that solves problems by going to war. Ah, yeah, there you go. That's what I'm looking for. And that only occurred when I'm two years out of football. And it's like this roller coaster ride, right? Because that moment in Pasadena, we're on a walk and I'm feeling this utter relief, bliss, lightness, recognizing that I'm done with football. Mm. And like my whole life is ahead of me. Yeah. And I'm experiencing this sense of freedom, this sense of 
being able to take a deep breath that I've never experienced before in my life. Mm -hmm. But then pretty quickly I realized, oh, fuck, I have no idea who I am. Mm -hmm. I have no idea what I'm supposed to be doing. Oh, yeah, being a writer, that sounded really simple, you know. And even as a guy who, like I said, there was this undertone of being a writer, being an artist underneath my football career. So I always had like, psychologically, there was always this part of me going, yeah, but I'm not really a football player. Like I didn't totally fit in in that world. Mm. You know, I was sort of, I was a little bit of an outlier because I was an artist spirit. The essence of my spirit is an artist, you know. But I'm here in this warrior and I've taken on this warrior persona and this warrior culture. Even with that, you know, I came out of my football career and it was pretty quickly I realized I don't even know how to fucking talk to anybody. I don't know how to relate to anybody outside of the prism of me being this superstar athlete. Yeah. You know, because for 15 plus years it was, hey, Eb, what do you want? What do you want to do after the game? Eb, what do you need? Mm -hmm. What's dinner going to be like? You know, what do you, I got, I went and got the groceries. I paid the bills. I did all this stuff. And I pretty quickly realized I had none, no skills whatsoever to relate to people, to relate to myself. And my entire life is coming crashing over me in this tidal wave where I couldn't smoke enough weed to get relief. I couldn't spend any more time in the gym to get relief. I'd be working out in the weight room for two hours, I'd come home and this, this motor's still running of like, okay, what now? What now? Mm -hmm. You know? And so the culmination of that was watching myself scream into the phone after a string of really difficult interactions with my wife where I'm screaming into the phone I'm going to kill myself or I'm going to kill somebody at mm. my wife because I was just completely choked with the inability to cope with where I found myself. Mm. None of the escape valves were working anymore. It's very similar to what happens to soldiers when they come back from battle. Mm. And, you know, the the speed and the adrenaline and the intensity. And then you come home and everything's like it's crawling and there's no... There's no um, threat. There's uh -huh. no, there's no, uh, nothing to keep you up. Yeah. You know, to keep, prop you up to, you, to, to, there's no survival drive. It's, right. So it's almost another analogy is like, it, you, you may have had the, the joy of this. I like to drive fast. You know, I have a background in racing. So, um, <laughs> you, you know, you, you get out in the desert, you know, and uh -huh. you drive 130 miles an hour for as far as you can get away with it. Uh -huh. Then you come into a township where it says, you know, slow to 35 or, right. or, or slow to 55. Uh -huh. And you feel like you get out and walk faster, right? You're like, what the hell's going on here? And you know, this is too slow. Yeah. And so you get so used to that speed of everything moving, uh -huh. but then you don't really have a normal sense of what normal is anymore. Yeah. So you don't know how to, be normal. Exactly. Yeah. Hello. I'm confident that living through COVID made it crystal clear just how many people worldwide are very unhealthy, unfit, 
and are being deceived by the medical system and have no idea how to actually care for themselves, condition their bodies for even baseline health, and how hard it is today for anyone to find trainers, coaches, therapists, or doctors that understand, apply, and practice holistic health principles. As sad as this is, it means that there is a massive number of people out there that need honest, skilled help, healing, conditioning, and guidance from people that understand and live holism. To do my best to support humanity, I partnered with Gavin Jennings, the CEO of the Czech Institute, to create the Czech Academy, a mentored four-year multidisciplinary education program that gives you all the training you need to begin and enjoy your career as a holistic health professional. The Czech Academy includes my Holistic Lifestyle Coach Program Levels 1 through 3 and gives you all the assessment methods, nutrition, and lifestyle coaching skills you need to help most anyone radically improve their health and vitality. The Czech Academy also includes all my integrated movement science training, teaching you how to scientifically assess each individual's structure, movement patterns, optimize their body, and scientifically design corrective and high-performance exercise programs. Additionally, Not only will you learn the art and science of helping people change their behavior to support their stated dream, goals, and objectives, you will gain a comprehensive understanding of the psyche. You will learn why people are so often challenged to create what they want in their lives, suffer from anxiety, depression, emotional instability, and how to guide them into wholeness. I started the Czech Institute in 1995, and there are now Czech-trained professionals working at the top echelons of many fields, including professional sports, physical therapy, chiropractic, naturopathic medicine, the medical field, the food and farming industries, and much more. If you are ready for a career in the mastery of holistic health and the experience of the ultimate joy of helping others look and feel their best, then the Czech Academy is ideal for you. The Czech Academy is a great way for you and your clients to achieve your overall health and personal development goals, plus a fantastic way to build a career with both meaning and financial freedom. Not only that, we designed the program so that you'll have the skills to provide a great service and earn a living within the first year of training. The Czech Academy is now accepting new students and we're accepting applications through October 15th, but please don't wait to get your application in. Three partial scholarships are available. You can find the details to apply for a scholarship on the Academy homepage. To submit your application to the Czech Academy, go to chek.group forward slash L number 4 D Academy. That's check.group forward slash L 4 D Academy. I would love to have you in the Academy and share everything that I've learned in my 40-year career with you, and it would be exciting for me to know that you're out there doing things that make you feel good about helping people and making the world a better place for everyone. And the going to war to solve the problems, that manifests itself in fights with your partner, smoking more weed or taking more drugs or drinking more alcohol or locking yourself in the room with the porn and doing this and doing that and just like doing anything you can to just like create that, create Mm -hmm. that excitement, the intensity. And none of that was working anymore. I was still in this, this desperation, this like zero fulfillment, zero contentment, you know, like at rock bottom basically. Yeah. And so, 
screamed that into the phone, hung up, got on the freeway to drive out to Chatsworth where I was, I had started this CBD company. Mm-hmm. So I had gotten into cannabis advocacy and wanted to be a part of the cannabis industries. This, you know, one of my many sort of flinging myself into something to fill the void. And by the time I got to the office, I could barely breathe. I was so choked with shame and guilt and shit. And my mom called me and she said, Eb, how you doing? I could barely speak, you know. She said, Eb, why don't you come over for dinner? And I didn't know it at the time, but my wife had gone to my mom's house and said, you know, I don't know how to help Eb. Seems like he's in a really dark place. So mom said, you know, why don't you come over for dinner? And uh, it was either that night or the next night. Went over for dinner as my mom, her twin sister, my Aunt Martha, and my brother. And I just started talking about, you know, we come from this family where alcoholism is part is a disease that's really wreaked havoc on our family. And the good news is we've got tools. You know, there's 12-step programs. And my brother had started going to Al-Anon and he said, Eb, I'm going to this men's meeting on Friday. You should come. And I was just completely on my knees, like didn't know what to do, nowhere to go. Had no idea how to even begin this process of picking up the, the million little pieces that I was in. And uh, I went to that first meeting and I went in there just cloaked in all of my my shit, shame and everything else and the guy leading it just started talking about his childhood, growing up in this environment, needing to take care of his little brother and needing to keep himself safe and all the ways he felt responsible for everybody's well-being around him and needing to be the alpha male when his dad left and all this stuff. And I just burst open. You know, it just cracked me open. Just this connection knowing that I wasn't alone. Yeah. You know, and giving context to mm-hmm. what I was feeling and experiencing. Mm-hmm. I spent the next hour just in tears, shared a little bit about where I was, left that meeting. It was like the sun had come through the clouds. I could see the light again. I had hope. I had faith. And, you know, 12-step programs really turned me on to prayer and meditation. And that led me back to therapy, which led me deeper into meditation, which led me, you know back to yoga, which then I found myself connected with one of my great mentors who brought me into plant medicine, combo and ayahuasca. And it started just like pulling this, starting to clear out the garbage. Yeah. Yeah. Starting to get clean Mm -hmm. for the first time ever. Mm -hmm. And also that mentor, he said to me, first time we met him, he said, Eb, you're a medicine man, you're a shaman, you're a witch. You come from a long f- family lineage of witches and medicine people. I said, what the fuck are you talking about, man? Like, what do you mean? He's like, no, you need to learn about where you come from. And a couple days after that, I get a letter from my grandmother and she says, Eben, I want to send you all of this information about your earliest American ancestor. Her name is Mary Bliss Parsons. She came to America in 1640. She was on trial for witchcraft three times, had 11 children. One of them was named Eben. He was killed in a battle with Native Americans. There's all these books written about her. And I just started doing a deep dive on this stuff. Mm. 
And uh, she, my grandmother, for whatever reason, had never shared any of this with my mom or my aunt. And so I got to share this with them. And it was a very healing experience because it brought a lot of context to my mom's own journey and, mm. and filling in the gaps of some things that what her life was. And, you know, I think you, you could speak to this probably even more in depth than I can, but the flip side of the, um, especially in Vedic astrology, with the Scorpio being this seeking out of mysticism, mm -hmm. the unseen, like spending time in the unseen realms of life experience. The flip side of that coin is substance abuse most often mm -hmm. because you're filling this void yeah, and you don't have the tools. You don't have the connection to God and spirit. Mm -hmm. So you're seeking it out through substances, alcohol, those types of things. And so my mom who had struggled with alcoholism for much of her life, it was like filling in this piece, this gap of like, oh yeah, this is who we are. You know, this is who we are. We really thrive when we're connected to spirit, when we're connected to God's source and we're living from that anchor. Mm -hmm. um, and then it just like, you know, the, the journey really was just starting at that point. You know, mm. getting that bedrock laid of like, mm. oh, this is who I am. This is why I think the way I do. This is why I'm interested in this stuff. You know, this is why, you know, I've had this deep curiosity of plant medicine or this deep curiosity of spirit and God and religion and uh, esoteric philosophy and so it started me on this path of just getting, starting to get acquainted with who I was yeah, and starting to look at why I had done the things I had done during that time of being totally unconscious mm -hmm. as it were, yeah, you know, and starting to recognize like, oh, my whole football career was about me proving to the world how big and scary I was. <clears throat> well, if you look at what you have learned about your family and your your family's tendency to solve problems with war, which I know extremely well, um, your football career may have been an unconscious attempt to to reassure yourself that you had what it takes to deal with the world, because you see our family upbringing is our imprint for what the world will bring. You understand? Uh-huh. You know, if you go to a hardcore Catholic church upbringing where God is dangerous and punishes you and right. there's strict rules and, and sexual trauma and violent beatings for misbehavior, then you, you naturally, the child thinks that's what the rest of the world is like. Yes. It has no... It has no way to determine anything else. I mean, that's, you know, you, you realize that you, that's most of your developmental process, your whole neurological and psychological orientation to what is happening around you comes from your family imprint. See, what, what you did with football, I did with boxing and kickboxing. Uh -huh. I, I had to <laughs> find a way to get strong enough because the archetypal imprint of a male that I got was from my stepfather who was a very powerful, violent man that hurt people. And so I'm like, 
as a kid, I'm thinking, I've got to, I've got to get the skills to protect my family because one day he's going to kill somebody and I got to make sure that doesn't happen. Uh-huh. So I had to go to boxing and kickboxing to give myself the confidence that I, I would at least have a chance against this grizzly bear. Yeah. And the key point is, is the father becomes the archetypal image that our psyche sees within all men. Mm-hmm. So if you come from an environment that's very tumultuous like that and very unstable, naturally the, the, the warrior has to rise up and say, for me to survive in the world, I've got to be a better warrior. I've got to be stronger. I've got to be able to handle these other people. Yeah. So I think from my experience as a therapist, you did through football what I had to do through boxing and martial arts. Uh-huh. And, and for me, it was the day that I was losing a fight, a major championship fight, that I realized that I had to take this guy out somehow, some way before he took me out. I'm in front of 5,000 people in a major boxing tournament. (laughs) And, And so what happened is the fear overpowered my sense of sportsmanship. And I didn't do anything illegal by any means, but I hit the guy so damn hard, I detached his retina and they mm. they could barely even wake the guy up. It took wow. three doctors. I mean, I hit him so hard, he was convulsing three feet off the floor. Literally, Christ he was coming dude. right off the floor. <laughs> and, and But the, the point is, is that when I, even though I won the tournament and I was a hero on the boxing team, I won the championship of the 82nd Airborne Division and all this stuff, um, I sat in the change room and I just cried my eyes out. Mm. I just was in deep pain because the only time I'd ever felt that much fear is when my father was trying to beat the shit out of me or my brother. And so what I realized is at that moment is my father hit him. I didn't hit him. My father hit him. And I realized that there was a part of me that I could not control when I reached that level of fear. And it it scared me because I thought, am I going to spend the rest of my life beating people up to convince myself that I'm safe in my with my father around? Uh, yeah. And so yeah, I realized that I I made a promise to myself that day. I was 24. I'd been fighting for 12 years consistently. Wow. And I I made a promise to myself that day, and the promise I made to myself was, I'm never going to practice hurting people again. I'm going to take all that energy and I'm going to convert it into figuring out ways to help people. Mm. And and that's how my career began. So that's how I took that painful family imprint, the archetypal fear of other men, mm. the threat that they carry, mm. because that's all I knew as a child. And at that moment, when I really crossed the line and could have killed this guy, I realized this is the door opening for me to recognize I didn't have to practice violence anymore. Uh I didn't have to get good at violence anymore. And that was the doorway that opened to the rest of my life, Uh which is why I'm here with you today. Yeah. And it's why you're here with me today Uh for the same reason. Yeah. And so it was a... That's amazing, man. Yeah. You you see the correlation there. Absolutely. Like I think... absolutely. we, We both had to convince ourselves that we could be safe in the world yes big and, time and that's still happening yeah well it does know, happen you know for and me covid really 
triggered off a lot with all this everything forced and you know me being a soldier and seeing all the loss of our freedoms and seeing criminals running around the street that if i was in the military would have wanted to clean up right away right and i'm like okay my family's being threatened here yeah everybody's family's being threatened here our entire nation's being threatened so for me you know it's like a revisiting of this warrior that keeps saying you know part of me is like you need to get your buddies together and go clean this garbage up before it comes to to get you uh-huh. and you need to do it for everybody else yeah but then the other part of me says you realize you're about to go use the same level of violence right <laughs> that's yeah. that you've ran from and been hurt by all your life uh-huh and so you you know you got a, a devil on the inside you got a devil on the outside and you're trying to find god in the middle of it all uh-huh. and it's really like being in the middle of a very powerful storm yeah and it's it can be intense I, yes the tightrope has gotten thinner for me you know this this whole situation it was easy to be meditative and spiritual and right but now that the devil's hanging out again uh, and real too close for comfort yeah the the warrior in me is you know ready to go out and lock and load and the then the spiritual guy in me is trying to justify well how do you do that and not become just like them right and it's a it's a really tough thing to balance what have you come to well the best thing that i can do is to educate people to know when to say no uh-huh. because one or two of us saying no won't do anything. Yeah. But, you know. Hundreds of thousands, 50 millions. million of us at yeah. a time saying no, it changes the tables and now it's not such an easy game for them to play. Right. And uh, <laughs> I'm going to tell you what I've come to and, and you're going to find it real interesting. <laughs> you remember the guy that told you to play one day at a time? Yeah. I'm playing one day at a time. That's it, man. I just say, Okay. You know, if you look at my mandala for this year, it's the chariot uh, archetype uh. and the charioteer has got to stay balanced. And there's two forces of consciousness, which is the black sphinx uh. and the white sphinx. Mm. The white sphinx represents Lucifer or Yang and the black one represents Aramon or Yin. And either of those gets too much power. It can be very destructive. So the guy in the chariot, the, the charioteer, he's got to maintain the balance and those sphinxes are not attached to that chariot because they represent consciousness mm. so it's not a physical chariot right it's the mind uh-huh and so the christ principle is the balancing force the uh-huh. Tao, the buddha those are all the balancing forces yeah. how do you stand in the middle between these two forces and not let either of them get out of control and eat you it's tough. It, it takes you right to the story of the Bhagavad Gita with mm. Krishna and Arjuna. And, yeah. and Krishna's saying, fight. Yeah. And Arjuna's saying, but look, my family's over there. I'm going to be <laughs> yeah. killing my uncles and my aunts and you know my yeah. family. And, and yeah. Krishna says, it's all a game. It's all God. <laughs> yeah. You're not really going to die. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, and Arjuna's having a really hard time with this. And, yeah. You know, so the, like this is why this has been talked about for thousands of years, right? right? This is the yeah. this is the. This is the grinding mill of spiritual development, right? Uh-huh. It's where you have to confront everything inside of you that isn't an authentic representation of love. Uh. And it's very hard to do. Mm. 
It's extremely hard to do. That's why I say the tightrope gets thinner as you get older and see more of this shit because you got to figure out, well, how do you, how do you walk that thing? Well, it's an interesting thing. I feel like you're the perfect guy to talk to about this and talking about, you know, the warrior to the wise man. Yeah. And for me, the practice, my life practice, which is exactly what you've just described of walking that tightrope. To me, that's the truth of the warrior. It is the warrior because here's the thing about being a warrior, and this is why a warrior has to have a chief. Mm. Because the immature warrior can expose him or herself to the force of death Mm. prematurely and ultimately get the tribe killed where negotiation and nonviolent approaches uh-huh. could ultimately bring a resolution that results in um, less or no conflict. Mahatma Gandhi's an example of what's possible, right? Uh-huh. If there's anybody that demonstrated to us the power of nonviolent interaction, mm. it's Gandhi. Mm-hmm. Um, and he took on the entire <laughs> British Empire, right? Right, And he yeah. taught everyone how to do it with him. Uh-huh. I know it's possible, mm. but it's not an easy thing, right? Uh-huh. Would you say, I, I, I imagine the warrior never really goes anywhere. It's still there. No, you always transcend, okay. but include. Okay. You can't, uh-huh. you, if, you, if you transcend without including, you become completely dangerous and lost. Uh-huh. For example, to use a simple structure, you've got, in Gebser's structure, you got the archaic structure of consciousness, which is the consciousness of the earth itself. Uh-huh. So if you're talking about the evolution of man, and you've got the magic structure of consciousness, which when we lived in nature for eons, we were fused into nature. Right. We, we, you know, lions and bears, they weren't um, enemies. Right. They were beings that lived in nature with you that you had to respect and understand. Right. Because they will eat you if you don't, uh-huh. and 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 you also learn from them. We human beings saw each of these as a form of intelligence. This is why you you see things like in Native American astro- astrology, they have constellations with beaver intelligence or salmon intelligence. So, you know, their way of relating to these things is we we if we if you want to know how to stop the flow of water, you you get beaver intelligence. If you want to know how to build something that's intricate, you speak to a blackbird. So in the magic level of consciousness, everything is alive. Uh Everything is animated by spirit and everything is a form of intelligence. And there is no um, human sitting at the top of this Darwinian pyramid. Right. I mean, that doesn't work out there. Yeah. And so... Then you go to the mythical level of consciousness is when, which, when we started telling stories to each other to try to explain why birth happens, why life can be so dangerous and tough, and what happens when you die, and the myth has to tell you how to get along with people. It also has to explain the mystery of how you appeared in this vast cosmos, and um, it, it has to give you an understanding of your place in it. So... We went from being like an animal, just living in it, mm. to reaching the level of questioning what is it all about. Right, right. And then we had to tell stories to help other people understand, mm. because if you don't understand these forces, you know, for example, you, if you don't understand lightning, 
<laughs> you just go stand in a lake on a, when a lightning bolt hits. <laughs> well, that's really cool. You're dead. You know, so yeah, they didn't have a scientific explanation for lightning. So these kinds of things became beings or gods because uh-huh. something with that much power is very godly. Uh-huh. So the mythical structure was to, was to, and it came by way of the shaman. It came by way of the artists. It came by way of the poets. It came by mm. way of, of musicians. Mm. It came by way of largely the outliers that had gone so deep into themselves that they had access to the consciousness of nature or the consciousness of the globe or the consciousness of the cosmos. Right. And so they're channeling these stories in, which mm. is still true to this very day. Uh-huh. And so then we transition to the mental level of consciousness, which is where we begin to worship ideas, mm. mm-hmm. right? And isn't it interesting? No one in a court of law has ever been able to present physical evidence of the COVID virus. Mm. Nobody. Uh Many court cases have been thrown out because Uh lawyers are smart enough to say, if we need to be locked into our houses, then you need to show me evidence that it's actually there and nobody can do it. Okay. So what you see Uh is that the idea can be as real uh-huh. As an impression of the actual thing. Right. Right. The idea that God will burn you in hell can ruin your life and stop you from a legitimate loving relationship with God. Right. Until one day you go to an ayahuasca ceremony and you meet God and you go, oh my God, I've lived all my life thinking God was going to burn me in hell. And I've missed most of my life because Uh i've been so afraid to connect to spirit yeah right yeah so the point is that the idea in absence of a legitimate myth in absence with the awareness that god lives in nature and in an absence of the idea that the earth is also god expressing itself now the idea world the mental level of consciousness without myth without magic and without connection to the earth becomes extremely dangerous Uh uh-huh Okay, so oh, yeah. if, if, if the warrior transitions without a childhood, right? If someone turns a child into a warrior before it's had a chance to live, then the warrior loses its spontaneity, it loses its creativity, it loses mm. its natural connection to its environment, and it loses its sense of love and connection to family and tribe. Mm. Because a warrior that hasn't had a secure connection to its own parents doesn't have secure connection to anybody else and is always in a state of fear and is always on the lookout for the need to fight. Uh-huh. So instead of seeing things as they really are, you project your fear onto the environment and you can end up killing people for the wrong reasons. Okay. So the warrior has to carry the child or it loses touch with reality. Uh-huh. When the warrior transitions to the king archetype, if the a king loses his sense of warriorhood, then the king is easy to, yeah. to dethrone, Yeah, right? Because he doesn't have a sense of how do you protect yourself. It would right. be like you trying to go, go back to your young days when you came out of college, trying to go into, into the NFL without a lawyer or an agent to represent you. Uh-huh. And you think you're going to do this on a handshake deal. Right. And you're wondering why there's no money in your bank account. <laughs> and everybody says, oh, that's just the way it is. And how do we know that happens? We look at the history of all the musicians and all the yeah. all the rock bands that lost tons and tons of money because they did not have the smarts 
to have good representation. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So the king has got to keep enough of the warrior in them to, to be clear about where the boundaries, the barriers are, and how the energy's got to flow to protect his environment. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So the, the, the key point is, is that we have to transcend to grow. And include. But we have to include or we lose touch with reality. Yes. And where we're in trouble today is we're in this complete deification of ideas, mm. but we've lost touch with a legitimate myth that holds us together. And Carl Jung, Joseph Campbell, and many others said, whenever a country's myth begins to break down, that's when all hell starts to break loose because then myths begin to compete. So you get the myth of scientism, you get, right. which carries the myth of transhumanism. And, and who is it clashing with? It's clashing with the myth of nationalism because those myths are tied to the myth of globalism. And then you then see people getting scared. So what did they revert backwards in their conscious structure? And now they go back to tribalism, which is called Orthodox religion and Christianity and all these religions have a long history of wiping out anybody with a different yeah. belief system. So what you yeah. see is once you go into a myth clash, that's the beginning of war. Uh, all hell breaks loose uh -huh. and out of the ashes rises the Phoenix uh -huh. And that's the new myth. <laughs> Interesting. The question is, can you survive the transition? Uh-huh. Hi, everybody. I bet you're like most people out there, and you have a hard time getting a deep, restful sleep consistently and regularly. And I'm one of those guys, not because there's anything wrong with me, but because I got so much going on, and I'm trying to do so much in the world, and I'm so passionate about things, I can't seem to stop creating at night. So sometimes I need a sleep aid, and I've just had a really hard time finding a good one until now. I came across Ned's sleep formula, and wow, has it been helpful, and it is super high quality. So high quality, I wanted to make sure you guys knew about it and could try it out. So I've got Adrian, the co-founder and one of the formulators for Ned, to tell us more about how this amazing product works and why it is so unique. So Adrian... Dial us in on this amazing product you guys have created. Yeah, well, I don't know about you, Paul, but man, is it hard to have a good day after a bad night's sleep. Amen. Sleep is literally the number one thing we can do to take care of ourselves. Yet so many of us experience issues falling asleep, staying asleep, or both. Yes. Our research showed us that most sleep aids, whether pharmaceutical or even the quote-unquote natural solutions like melatonin, actually disrupts circadian rhythm and perpetuates sleep issues in the long run. And that's not even mentioning some of the addictive nature of these things and the long list of side effects from these conventional solutions. So that's when we got together with our expert team of formulators to craft what we consider the ultimate natural alternative to conventional sleep aids that really is aimed to give us better days after better nights. So it has become our all-time best-selling product. We call it Ned Sleep Blend. It features organic full-spectrum hemp and organic botanicals like lemon balm, passion flower, and skullcap, all sourced through our Farm to Net Alliance, which we designed to procure the best botanical ingredients available that actually work, while also supporting independent, organic, regenerative farmers across America. And thank you for that. That's important. Yeah, so important. And it also includes a little recognized but powerful minor cannabinoid called CBN, that is being recognized as one of the most effective natural sedative compounds available. 
So all these elements combined means you sleep deeper, longer, and wake up refreshed, all without the nasty side effects. So it's available in both tincture and vegan capsules. All you have to do is go to helloned.com and use the code CHECK, that's C-H-E-K, to get 15% off your first purchase. Plus, every order is backed by our 60-day stress-free guarantee. So if you don't feel a significant improvement in your sleep, we'll give you your money back, no questions asked. Awesome. I can't wait for you guys to try it. I absolutely love the stuff. I'm super excited to be able to share this product with you. So give it a try. We're a mythless culture worldwide right now. We've got no sense of, we can't, we, we don't know enough about what AI will do to know whether we're safe or not. Right. We don't know where all this vaccination and, and so-called science is going to take us. Right. But we're looking around and seeing the results of it so far, and it doesn't look good. But where we where do we go? Right. Do we go back and live like the Amish? Hard to do. Uh huh. There's too many of us. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. How do you run a farm that big? Yeah. So you see, right now, we as a culture are right where you were at when your career was falling apart and your body was hurting, and you didn't even want to get out of bed, and you were caught between I don't want to do these drugs, but I can't function without them. Mm-hmm. And here we are. <laughs> we can't function without all these drugs and they're being pushed into our face and we're being treated like objects and said, do it, do it good, you know, and, and we're being told to teach our children to act like pedophiles. And so you've got all these myths coming in because there's certain powers to be that want to take control of everything and be the next uh, messiah because that means total control. So it's a real, you know, the part of the, the, the thing that I thought was really interesting about your story, as I said before we got on, I said there's a lot of archetypal elements into your story. And it's interestingly the story of Eben is the story of humanity. Uh-huh. <laughs> and it's the story of Paul. Right. And we're at a place, we're at a place right now where we all have to make the same transition that you and I both did. And that is that we have to find something that is more sustainable than what fear produces. We have to find something that's more sustainable than what violence can manage. And we have to find something that is sustainable for the planet because even if we find something that works for us but if it keeps torturing the planet we're all dead anyhow so this is the real you know we the the transition from the warrior to the king you become the king when you have mastery of something you have the ability to pay your own way you don't need uh people to uh bail you out you you have uh people that are want you because of your mastery like they wanted you as a football player and the problem is is in the king stage you carry the responsibility for everybody in your kingdom and you've got to keep developing enough energy to generate the energy and the resources to maintain the kingdom right and if you get to the point where you cannot maintain the energy and the resources of the kingdom then you have what arthur young calls a choice point so here you're in this ascending rise, which is really the concretization of self. I'm the king. 
here I am. Here's uh-huh. my here's my domain, right? Mm. But to to get past that, you have to enter the wise man stage or the wise woman stage. And if you look out through antiquity, how did they live? Did they drive Ferraris? No. Did they have castles? No. Uh, did they eat more than they needed? No. Did they kill more than they needed to? No. Uh-huh. So, yeah. you, you look at, at the Western culture and say, okay, if what we've got to do to get wise is drastically reduce our overconsumption of drugs, of food, of resources, and we've got to get back to our hearts and get back to each other and find a spiritual philosophy that is unified enough that it makes room for everybody else. In other words, we, we can't say you must practice this way or we're, we're communists now or socialists. We have to figure out somehow to create a myth that allows us all to recognize what is most essential for all of us and for life and for nature and honor that, but still leave room for us to have individual differences. Mm. Not an easy thing to do. No, no. It means we've got to be able to put the Ku Klux Klan and black people in the same tent and have them get along as a metaphor. We've got to put the scientist, the, the scientific materialists and the Buddhists in the same tent. Right. We've got to put the, the hedonists and the vegans in the same tent <laughs> yeah. and how, have them get along. Uh-huh. Yeah. That, that's where we're at. Mm. Mm-hmm. It's really fascinating to me thinking about that that evolution of consciousness which of humanity and the individual and also going back to what we were talking about in there about the nervous system and the real bear your mind not knowing the difference between a real bear and the perceived bear yep and that how that that innate part of our physiology how that is directly tied to this mythical level of consciousness. It is. And the word, the deification of ideas and yes. how that's been weaponized. It's been weaponized. To lock us in a state of fear about something that we can't even perceive. Yep. And for me, the only way, because when all this stuff started happening, I think this was like, it was stepping into a portal with COVID. It was like Mm -hmm. this new world we were starting to see. Mm -hmm. It was like the twilight zone, Mm -hmm. like seeing how people were being affected by it, what people were thinking about it, where people were throwing their allegiances to and settling into, well, I'm on this team. I'm a pro I'm on the vaccine team. I'm not, I'm fuck the vaccine. I'm on the mask team, not fuck the masks. Yep. And and we saw how many people that were totally holistic, <laughs> natural, God, yeah. God, God will heal me, running off to get vaccines. Yeah. And going and completely, completely against, against everything they'd live for. Exactly. And for me, Paul, and I think that this is 
where I where I got to, which was, you know, what I was talking about of starting to pick up the pieces and the plant medicine and yoga and starting to rewire my subconscious mm-hmm. belief matrix mm-hmm. through my nervous system, mm-hmm. like recalibrating my nervous system. Yeah, which is really first a recalibration of your own soul's orientation. Uh-huh, uh-huh. I mean, the nervous system is just a physical vehicle for the higher subtle energies that are, you know, the nervous system, for example, responds to thought, but not thought. the thought that makes your brain work isn't something you can weigh and measure. Right. That's the problem with, with the uh, scientific materialist view of the brain. They think the brain generates consciousness, but that's like saying uh-huh. <laughs> that's like saying you should be able to cut your television open and find Arnold Schwarzenegger in there. <laughs> right. you know? yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And, you know, it's interesting, driving up here, we were having this conversation uh, a friend is going through a certain trial right now having to do with relationships. I feel like it's always having to do with relationships, whether with yourself or with other people or an uh, institution or a situation. <laughs> God cannot know itself without relationships. Exactly. That's step number one, right? Exactly. As soon as God looked into itself, that was the beginning of love and relationship. And the problem with love is it always comes with responsibility. Mm. So... What people want is love without responsibility, but there is no such thing. <laughs> oh, it's so good. And even going back to, you know, Dr. Payne and one of my one of my mentors, he said to me, Eb, you know, we can evolve through insight or we can evolve through pain. And at this stage in our spiritual growth for humanity it seems like the only way through is to evolve through pain which has been true in my life and whatever that pain is mm-hmm. mental emotional physical yeah. but it's that moment where all of a sudden your life and the tools that you have to manage it are not working anymore mm-hmm. and so you come into confrontation with yourself yeah, And you're looking out here, you're going to everybody you know, and you're going, Paul, what do I do? What's the answer? How do I start taking care of myself? What, wait, you're telling me I need to focus on me. How do I do that? Yeah. You know, and that's really like this beginning stage mm-hmm. of you find yourself, you're completely in the illusion. You're caught in the illusion. Yes, yeah. Because you're looking, you're like, oh, surely that person has the right idea. Yeah. Or surely there's an answer, there's a blueprint for what I'm dealing with and how to move through it. And for me, the the only thing that's ever worked is to start going inward as painful or uncomfortable as that has been over the years, whether that's through meditation or a Bikram class or, you know, uh, a plant medicine ceremony or a really hard workout, or something that rattles my nervous system to the point where I'm taken to the bottom of myself, essentially, and mm-hmm. I get to have an experience of this mechanism inside of me that perpetuates mm-hmm. a certain behavior yeah. or a certain pattern. And then I get to look at it, and I get to come into acceptance of it, Yeah, stop denying it, stop right. resisting mm-hmm. it, stop running from the it. The devil you know is always better than the devil you don't know. Right, right. And that's what this is. These are, these are right. 
a, a real plant medicine ceremony, a, an honest meditation practice. They're devil hunting. Uh-huh. It's, it's looking for the invisible devil to make it visible so that you can actually decide, do you want to keep dancing with it? Yes. And there's yes. a lot of ways in there. You know, and, right. Uh, you know, some people, plant medicines aren't the right way to go because they don't have the discipline to differentiate the euphoria and the connection and the God experience uh, that comes by way of the plant medicines from the rest of their life. Uh-huh. So what I mean by that is yeah. they only feel connected when they're on some kind of a plant medicine or a drug. Yeah. So what should be a ceremonial practice starts to become a regular use practice, which then uh, negates the spiritual uh, practice and the process itself. And now you might as well just be on cocaine or something else because it's doing the same thing to you, right? Uh I mean, those are not physically addictive substances, but anything can be psychologically addictive because it, it ultimately can create a state that is a state of connection and a state of elevation and a state of bliss that you haven't learned how to create on your own, uh-huh. which is why, you know, you see all these paintings. I get high when I paint. I feel connected when I paint. Uh-huh. That's why I exercise. That's why I work with stone. That's why I, uh-huh. I, I, I have orchards and gardens and animals and, um, and children and, um, you know, uh, the point is, is I, I, I have a lot of tools and, and relationships, right? Uh-huh. I have, uh, and, and sex is beautiful for that because we, we can bring each other into utter states of union through, right. through sex. Yeah. And we don't need to have a drug to do that. Yeah. We just need to be present with somebody mm-hmm. and, and really engage them. Um, but you see, if somebody gets that experience only by way of what should be sacramental, then it loses its sacramental value. Uh-huh. And now you have microdosing that becomes daily macro dosing. Right. Now you have, we're in a ceremony, leave your phone at the door, nobody leaves the room uh-huh. until the ceremony is over. Now we have people driving around on two hits of LSD thinking this is cool and they're just more <laughs> evolved than everybody else. That's why they can get away with it <laughs> until they kill somebody. Right. You know, and I've seen all of this go very, very south, which is why I did a very comprehensive podcast on a plant medicine user's guide with Hamilton Souther to really say, look, this is how these things work. This is what you got to be aware of. And this is what can happen if you mess around with this shit. Uh-huh. But really what, what what we're talking about here is, we're at the point in, in our own evolution, <laughs> you see, you and I have already walked down that trail of tears. Uh-huh. So we found, okay, those plant medicines and these things that actually help you find the devils inside of yourself, guess what? There's no sense finding more devils than you can learn to manage. Mm. You know mm-hmm. what I'm saying? Mm. If you do 10 plant medicine ceremonies in a row, you'll meet at least 10 devils. Right. But if you haven't learned to work with one of them, yeah. you're just wasting medicine. Yeah. And you're just becoming a village idiot. <laughs> the, the difference is, is you recognize yeah. the name of the idiot that's coming through you, but you don't still don't know how to control it. Uh-huh. So it's we're really in a, a very tricky, tricky situation mm-hmm. for all of us. Yeah. Thanks, brother. So my thought there is, We've got a lot of people walking around in an illusion. Oh yes. Or and and or unconscious. 
having never had the experience of waking up. The, yeah, yeah. The ah and om. Mm-hmm. The springtime. Yeah. Coming into the light, going like, I'm awake. Yes. Very few people have come into that. Yeah. Or maybe not. Maybe there's more than we'd hoped. Well, um, you know, that comes in many ways, right? Uh-huh. You can be a very enlightened uh, carpenter and a very enlightened scientist, but a very unenlightened person with how to take care of your body. Yeah. God's in no hurry to be enlightened. You're right. What do you do then? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> you, it's, it, yeah. It's not the destination, it's the journey that's interesting. Yes. Right? Oh, that's a big, that's a big one, man. It's right? a big one. That's why people don't like being told the truth of a lot of these things. This is, you know, the analogy I give is, hey, look, have you ever gone to a hotel room or a motel when you were traveling and you forgot to check the alarm clock to see if somebody had set it for a different time? And all of a sudden at 2.30 or 3 o'clock or 4 o'clock in the morning, they're beep, 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 and you're like, wake up, pissed off. Who in the fuck did that? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, what's my point? People don't like to be woken up early. Uh-huh. Right? Yes. But the problem is, is that we're in a, we're in a sleepwalk that has been programmed into us by people that are taking advantage of the sleepwalk. Uh-huh. But now the sleepwalk's actually destroying the planet and it's destroying people. So... There's a lot of people that don't want to wake up that we've got to wake up. The question is, how do you wake them up? Because yes. if you wake people up too quickly, it's like hitting a hornet's nest. Yeah. And the next thing you know, you're the same people that you're trying to help crucify you. Ask Jesus. Exactly. <laughs> He'll tell exactly. you all about it. <laughs> yeah. That's why people keep telling me, Jesus is coming back. I say, you think he's that stupid? <laughs> Last time he came back, they stapled him to a tree. Yeah, I don't dude. think he's in a rush. Yeah. If he does come back, he's going to keep his distance. Yeah. And since you know who his name is, guess what? He's here. He's in your mind. He's in your heart. So you don't need him to come back because all you got to do is be brave enough to practice even a little bit of what he taught you. Uh-huh. And there's the tightrope that's very thin. Yeah. Yeah, right? It's the yeah. tightrope we're on. Yeah. Like when when I hear onward Christian soldiers marching off to war with the cross of Jesus going on before I go, now there is the manipulation of a myth. mm Right, mm-hmm. because that justification has been used by Christians to kill a lot of people. Yeah, and that's not being awake. Right, right, right. Yeah, that's poking a hornet's nest. Yeah, I mean that analogy of uh, I've said that my brother and I have had this conversation. Like, if somebody's asleep, you don't go and shake them to wake them the fuck up because they're going to go, "Yo, what the fuck are you doing? Right? Why'd you wake me up like that?" And they're just going to be pissed off at you. Yeah. And allowing people the opportunity to wake up themselves, that's the challenge that you're talking about. It's like, how do we get these opposing these opposing ideologies, these opposing, uh, basically like oppositions of worship into the same tent? It's tricky. To Look, become I, friends. It's it's. It's tricky, but what you do is you have to go through the melting down of a myth. And and I created a saying to make a very potent point. And here it is. If you want to meet the devil, pick a fight with Jesus. Go to the Christians and tell them their religion's wrong. Mm. But before you do, remember there's now 45,000 branches of Christianity, Uh which means their ideas of Jesus are 45,000 times confused. Mm. Mm -hmm. Right? Yeah. If you started a school to teach people how to do something really well and came back 
2,000 years later and there was 45,000 derivations of it, would you feel successful? <laughs> would you feel understood? <laughs> yeah. Right? Yeah. Now, that metaphor has another bottom. The globalists are picking a fight with Jesus. They're threatening what we love. They're threatening the way we live. They're threatening our belief in God. They're, they're telling us there's no such thing as God or the soul. You're a hackable animal and you're totally controllable and we're going to prove it to you. You're going to own nothing and be happy. Right. And I say, demonstrate that to us first so we know for sure it works. Uh-huh. While you're flying your jets, <laughs> yeah. burning up carbon and giving us carbon taxes. So the point is the metaphor has many, many meetings. It means, okay, you, you want to you pick a fight with what holds us together, you're going to meet the devil in us. So this is one of those statements that has, you know, many, many bottoms to it. And so um, uh, what I've been saying to everybody for a long time is, look, we got to get past all these ideologies. Right. Because they're all mental structures. Uh-huh. We got to understand what we all need together. Right. And watch this. When I tell you this, I want you to say to yourself inside, Where did each of these things play a role in my own recovery? We all need the earth together. Could you have grounded yourself and fed yourself well enough to heal yourself without a healthy earth beneath you? No way. We all need clean water. Could you be who you are if you were still drinking poison liquids? Nope. Nope. We all need to protect the water together. It's it's on its way out. There's not a single, there's a handful of sources of water in the world that aren't poison right now small handful. We all need clean air and we all need each other. So whatever philosophy we come up with, it's got to protect the earth. It's got to protect the water. It's got to protect the air and it's got to protect love. And if it doesn't do that, it's, it's just another illusion that's going to lead us into a firewalk of, of uh, realizing what we had and what we forgot to protect, and we'll either become bionic robots that don't need to breathe, eat, or think, and, and, and have been programmed to believe we're human, uh-huh. or we're going to be sitting in the afterlife going, well, we fucked up another planet. What do we do now? <laughs> <laughs> That's dark, man. It's dark. Well, sometimes- And it's true. Yeah. And it's true. What would you say, because for me- we were having this conversation and I'm, I'm going back to my journey. Yep. And your journey is everybody's journey. Right. And I'm thinking, okay, how did I untangle myself from all of my illusions? I can tell you how I was doing it, but yes, please. No, I'll let you tell it. Then I'll, I'll tell you, if you <laughs> I'll tell you what I think you did. Well, using 12 steps as a, as a blueprint for it. Yeah. It was recognizing that my life had become completely unmanageable. Right. The way that I was thinking about things, the tools I had were not working to bring my life, to, to bring me peace in my life. So I had to recognize that first and come into acceptance of it. Then I had to become willing to turn my life over to a higher power, something greater than me, a greater intelligence than me, knows better than this ego 
about what to do next, how to solve these problems. Because the the way I've been solving problems mm-hmm. was creating more chaos. Yep. More disruption, more disconnection, more division. Yep. Then I got to bring God into my life mm-hmm. and totally surrender my life over to God, mm-hmm. which is where the miracles started to happen. That's good. The problem is, is that depending on which God you surrender to, uh-huh. you can find yourself in yet another battle because uh-huh. the war of gods has killed more people on this planet than anything. <laughs> For sure. And so that, that's the trick. But you know. Well, I would say in this instance, Paul, my God, it, I, I became conscious enough to recognize that my God was love and acceptance. That, that's the safest God, and that's the God that I told you makes for one hell of a tight tightrope. Tight uh-huh. Yes. Because when that, because when someone else's God wants to vaccinate your children yeah. and without your consent, when someone else's God is trying to teach your children to be a pedophile, yeah. okay, we, yeah. we have a problem. Yeah, okay, so, thousand percent. So two things that I want to share. A functional definition of spirituality is a progressively expanding sphere of awareness. Mm. So the spiritual person first realizes themselves as the epicenter of their experience but then realizes I can't really get along in the world without people to support me. So first they go from being egocentric or I-centric to we-centric. It's like, okay, you know, uh-huh. you know, it would have been a lot harder for you to navigate your football career without your wife supporting you. For sure. Wouldn't it? Uh-huh, thousand percent. Okay, so at some point you, you realize, okay, I've got to make this not just about me because if it is, then it's harming my wife or if I have kids or or even friends. So spirituality goes from I to we. Mm, uh-huh. Then we can say, okay, we, but we have different beliefs and they cause us to clash with those people. But then we got to find out what we all need together. What we all need together actually is a much greater sphere. It's called the whole planet because we all need resources. We all need a place to live. We all need to know that we can walk down the street safely, right? So then you have to get morality involved. Uh-huh. And we've lost morality. Right. Science has lost morality. Right. Right. So then you realize that every one of us and every group of us depends on all of us. Uh-huh. Or we can't make it. Right. Then you get to the next sphere and you say, okay, well, we, we've, we're earth-centric now. We're doing pretty good, but the earth couldn't we couldn't we would have nothing to eat without the sun and there'd be no life on the planet without the moon to move the tides there'd be no heartbeat so there must be intelligence in the sun and the moon they're not just physical objects floating around there's which you know, you start looking into these things for a while and i could give lots of spiritual practices to do that uh-huh. then you say okay well god that's interesting everything that's happening here has something to do with the sun and the moon then you got to say okay well they're part of a galaxy then you got to say, well, the galaxy's part of a universe. Then you got to go, well, what the hell created the universe then? <laughs> then you get to this thing called God, which is the placeholder for I don't fucking know. It's beyond, you can't put it in a box. Uh-huh. And so if we all realize that what God is is a mystery, but the closest we can get is the experience of love, mm. now you see the spiritual person that starts out as a vegan and it's got to be this way. And, yep, yep. you know, it's, you know, vegans can be very aggressive, as you uh-huh. know. And, and then they realize, okay, well, that got me sick, so now I have to eat meat or whatever. And then you're, now you're now the paleo people are your friends instead of your enemies. And, uh-huh. and you, so you see this. So what I'm saying is, 
we have to come into something be- deeper than religion as it's commonly used and traded. We have to come into a spiritual exploration uh-huh. of what life really is and what we really are. And ultimately, if you follow that line, it all hinges around love. It all hinges around connection, around relationship, around responsibility for each other. And it all hinges on a mystery. And that's where worship comes in. That's where opening yourself to something bigger than your head can hold as an idea comes in. Hi, this is Penny, the voice of the podcast Intros and Endings, and I am interrupting this episode with a special announcement from our sponsor, Bioptimizers. I just got word from them that Bioptimizers have a really great opportunity for Living 4D with Paul Chet listeners. So great, in fact, that Paul doesn't even know about it yet. You all know how important probiotics are for our health. And if you've listened to Paul's podcast for a while, you know how much he relies on P3OM from Bioptimizers for his go-to probiotic support for immune health, gut health, and overall well-being. If you've never tried P3OM, here is your opportunity. So listen up. This month only, you can get a free bottle of this patented, vegetarian-friendly, lactose-free, 100% plant-based, super-strain probiotic. By Optimizers, the makers of P3OM are offering a challenge. For Paul's listeners, they are offering a free bottle of P3OM probiotics. All you have to do is pay a nominal shipping fee. Really, that is it. There are no other strings attached and no other purchases required. Their challenge is simple. Try P3OM and see all of the positive changes I just mentioned. And if your digestion, gut, and microbiome are not improved, you've lost nothing. But if they are, well, then you have gained everything. To get your free bottle, just go to p3om.com forward slash Paul free and enter the coupon code Paul10. It's as simple as that. Listen, they wouldn't be giving these bottles away if they weren't 100% confident in how effective it is. And Paul can back this up, as P3OM is on the short list of supplements he absolutely has to have. To get your free 14-day supply right now and start the challenge, go to p3om.com forward slash Paul free and use the coupon code Paul, the number one and the number zero. Do not miss this opportunity as it is a limited time offer for this month only. The other thing that I wanted to share, you know, when I I, I was going to share, but then I wanted to let you share, you know, you were talking about the challenges you had in, in the 12-step program and you were saying, how did I get past these ideas of, you know, you were living that were challenging you, right? Uh-huh. The illusions, right? Yeah. Because they were illusions. Uh-huh. And the, the, the way I describe that is that you know you're in trouble and that you're living an illusion because if the belief that you hold does not interface with reality, you come into great meetings with the pain teacher. Uh-huh. Right, the belief I can drive drunk uh-huh. doesn't interface with reality. Right, right, because an alcoholic thinks they can handle alcohol. Right, drug users think they can handle drugs. Uh huh. Um, and so what happens is, whenever you're 
belief or ideology or mental construct does not interface with reality, you come into a clash with reality. And we're all in a global clash with reality. And, and so, um, the, 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 the trial by fire is how do I upgrade my belief system to be congruent with reality? Then you come face to face with a problem. Well, what is the truth of reality? Right. Because everybody thinks they know. Right, so now you see the scientists say reality is material existence, and there's nothing else. Right, forget about all the foo foo. Uh huh. But then you get spiritual people say, "I got news for you. Uh-huh. <laughs> Matter is spirit moving slowly enough for you to interact with it. Uh-huh. So why don't you go to spirit instead of the stuff that's secondary? Uh-huh. Right. And and so you you start seeing these reality clashes, and I say, guess what? Both of them are true. Uh huh. You know, Jung. Carl Jung and Wolfgang Pauli, you know who Wolfgang Pauli is? I'm not he, familiar he, he, with him. He was one of the pioneers of quantum physics. Okay. But a genius. Him and Jung worked together to try to figure out what is the psyche. And uh. they concluded after years of working on this together, I mean, talking to the greatest minds on this planet yeah. at the time, they concluded that the, the psyche is pure energy at one end and matter on the other end. And what's in between it is the human being. And now to, to put it into yogic terms, we've got seven chakras, which are levels of vibrational reality, which is exactly what the alchemist told us. Uh-huh. And so the seventh chakra is the highest vibration. It's the one that's connected with pure spirit. Right. But the root chakra is the one that's most like your bones and your teeth and, and the trees and the most rocks dense. and the stones. Uh-huh. And everything in between is a rainbow bridge, uh-huh. right? So we know that Pure energy or consciousness can't be identified as this or that because it's in potential, uh-huh. right? It's pure potential. Mm. And we know that we need more than just rocks and stones and bones to live. And so in between is this rainbow bridge. And that's where life takes place is on that rainbow bridge. So when we look at that rainbow bridge, we, we, we can put it in a simple metaphor. We've got to protect each of those colors uh-huh. because if we lose green... Think of that. Uh-huh. If we lose green, be be real simple about it. What if we lose everything that's green in nature? Can mm. we live? No. We're dead. Yeah. If we lose red, we lose our blood. We're dead. If we lose orange, we lose our vitality. We lose the emotional connection to everything. If we lose yellow, we lose our self, which is what the globalists are trying to do. Uh-huh. They're trying to knock the personal identity out and turn you into a controllable robot so they've got a fleet of robots that are easily controllable at the push of a button. Uh-huh. But if you, have, if you have no more sense of identity, then how do you know who's making decisions? How do you know who's eating? How do you know what you're eating? You know, how do you know what love is anymore? Uh-huh. If you lose blue, you lose your capacity to create and communicate. Uh-huh. If you lose indigo, you can't have any insight. If you lose violet, you lose intuition, and intuition is the only function of consciousness that can tell you what thinking, feeling, and sensing cannot tell you, and it uses the mind of the whole universe to answer problems. Uh-huh. Right? So, so put as simply as I can state it, you see right now we're in a crisis mm-hmm. because we have lost touch with the rainbow bridge. Yeah, We've become either so materialized right. that we've negated the spirit uh-huh. or we've become so spiritual that we're ready to get rid of the planet and don't give a shit about it because we just want to get the fuck out of here uh-huh and so that's kind of <laughs> like just waiting to die uh-huh 
And when you're just waiting to die, then you, 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 you really have lost your agency for love, care, and compassion because it's like um, you go into a state of apathy. Yeah. It's, uh, you know, it's all Maya, just check out. Right. Which classic is very classically Luciferian. If you study the history of Lucifer, Lucifer, the Luciferian consciousness is get out of this world. I can take, I can turn you into an angel. Just come be with me, uh-huh. and uh, don't worry about God. We'll do something even more fun. But you got to get out of the world. <laughs> so the whole uh-huh. idea of you know getting stoned out of your mind, Timothy Leary, you t- 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 tune in, turn on, and drop out. That's classic Luciferian consciousness, unfortunately. And and that's not to say that it's bad. It's just bad if it's not balanced with nature the rest, yeah. and, and responsibility. Uh-huh. So it's a, we're, we're in a very um, volatile time. But, you know, I can only share with you what's worked for me. Uh-huh. And I know it's worked for you too. Um, when you're lost, when you're scared, when you're wounded, when you're confused, you can either look for someone really smart or you can re- look for someone that can teach you how to love. If you find someone smart that doesn't know how to love, you get another ideology. Uh-huh. If you can find someone that's not so smart but teaches you how to love, love will always guide you to the truth. I think the only way to connect the rainbow bridge is is through the heart. And, and, and there's that thin tightrope. Yeah. How do we protect ourselves and what's important? And take a lesson out of Gandhi's playbook. But that takes tremendous discipline. Me too. <laughs> to, yeah. To be nonviolent when someone's being violent to you. Uh-huh. Right? Yeah, that's the ultimate. It takes the front lineman out of the front lineman, man. Yeah, totally, man. It's that's it's, the ultimate dance right it's there. It's very tricky. Yeah. It's scary. Uh-huh. It's scary. Yeah. It's like someone putting you in a boxing ring with your hands tied behind your back. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, so uh, the only answer I can come up with is is the same one that you did. I mean, you look, I watched you walk in here with your beautiful partner. There's a lot of love floating between you two, <laughs> right? <laughs> you know, there's 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 something between the two of you that's greater than either of you alone, isn't there? thousand percent and that's the thing that guides you yeah and that's what guides people that's why people that have been married a long time last because they know there's something bigger than their individuality bigger than just the two of them it's the genius and the love and the passion that is made out of them together and in union psychology that's called the third and look jesus said whenever two or more get together in my name i will be there that's the third what we need right now is to get together in the name of Christ, if you will, which means love, and ask ourselves the question, what would love do now? Because if you ask the question, what would love do now, you're going to get a different question answer than lock and load. You're going to get, you know, you're going to get a lot different kinds of questions, a lot different responses, but we got to start practicing we have to start practicing. A thousand percent, man. It's so true what you said. I mean, love is the only answer that's ever 
solved all the problems that I come into contact with. Yep. Truly. And it's fucking hard. That's because love, as I said earlier, comes with responsibility. Uh Uh-huh. Right? Uh Uh-huh. Would any child survive if mom did not have deep connection to the responsibility of love and dad? And would a garden survive without the responsibility of love? No. Is the planet surviving without love? No, it's dying because we've fallen in love with things that aren't real, right? When there's no fish swimming in the ocean anymore, uh, it's a clear indicator that we've forgotten what to love. When people are more in love with their iPhones and their BMWs and their uh, video games than they are in love with the fact that the whole planet's dying. Um, so, I mean... We're in a uh, we're in a time of great crisis, but great crisis brings great awakening. Is that the wise man, the wise woman, the embodiment of the recognition of love is is all there is? I think I think the true wise man and wise woman is not only the embodiment of love, but they're deeply honest about what reality is. In reality, is what is essential for love to have a place to live, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, uh, you know, a great story that really kind of highlights this. I'll tell it in short summary. But you know, my mother's sculpted Chief Joseph in there, and Chief Joseph was the head of the Nez Perce Indians. And when white man came around and started, you know, scalping Indians and taking their territory, of course, the warriors got triggered and said, "We're not going to put up with this." But Chief Joseph, in his wisdom, said, even if they kill any of us, do not retaliate. We have to be very careful about this. And as the chief, he knew he had to be the buffer that decided, how do you respond to this? Because they will kill all of you, right? So he said to his braves and his warriors, do not go around seeking revenge. We have got to be very careful right now. Well, as the story goes, three of them snuck out and started scalping, you know, U.S. Cavalry soldiers. Well, that led to a full-blown military attack on the Nez Perce Indians, and they ran for 18 months and captured them. I think, if I remember right, about 60 miles from the Canadian border and forced them onto a reservation, and Chief Joseph died of a broken heart. What's the moral of that story? Jesus said, love thy enemy as thyself. How easy is that to do? Someone hits you, turn the other cheek. How easy is that to do? Someone scalps your grandfather, kills your grandfather. How how easy is it not to go return the favor? It's a very hard thing to do. And, And I think humanity is in a crisis of spiritual adulthood. We have got to walk the fire to take responsibility for reality. And and love, we have to we have to we have to get love to hold hands with reality. And if we don't, then we're going to die feeding illusions. Well, Eb, we've uh, certainly addressed the world and <laughs> ourselves, uh-huh. and professional sports. Yeah, and um, the challenges of being a warrior, mm. and we've identified what a king is. Someone is, who has dominion over their own Mm. expertise and domain 
and doesn't need to rely on um, bailouts from others. And, you know, there's just so you know, when you go from child to warrior to king to wise man, it's like a pyramid. You you lose a lot of people. Uh-huh. Right now, about uh, at least 70% of the world population is still at the child archetype uh-huh. level, no matter what age they're in. That's why you had so many people running off to get vaccinated during COVID, because uh-huh. they were letting daddy figures tell them what to do instead of thinking for themselves. Right. Warriors truly stood up for their beliefs, willing to die for them. And we saw how many that pretended to be kings and queens yeah. reverted right below the warrior stage all the way to the child stage and got vaccinated. Yeah. And people we never expected. Uh-huh. That. I won't name names to poke the dragon because uh-huh. they all know who they are and most of us know who they are. And people that shocked the hell out of me. I mean, I would have bet the house that certain people wouldn't have done that, but I was really deadly shocked to see how many people reverted back in consciousness. But whenever whenever a person's under stress, there's a breaking point where they drop below to the next structure stage of consciousness down. The reason is, is the deepest levels of consciousness are programmed into you as a child and you were unconscious until you developed an ego. So a child has no discernment until it has an ego. And in a healthy culture, an ego doesn't form till about 21 to 25 years of age. And in our culture, it takes usually 35 plus if it ever happens. Uh-huh. So you saw people reverting back to things like Orthodox Christianity and uh-huh. um, you know, basically the belief system of their childhood programming. Because the reason for that is those things operate autonomically, automatically, unconsciously. So to exemplify that, I tell my students, it's a bad idea to throw in a cartwheel if you're running from a lion. You need to use your instinctual knowledge because it's wired into you and it's reflexive. You climb a tree before you even know you how, to got, how you got up there. Uh-huh. And then after, what, after you celebrate, wow, I'm alive. Right. But if you sit and pull out your manual for how to get away from a lion, you're dead. Yeah. Consciousness takes time to process. The unconscious reacts immediately. So the greater the threat, the more people revert back to childhood programming. And in our case, 85% of the world's population has religious affiliation. So you see people going back to uh, orthodox uh, scriptural doctrine um, and trying to live that out, which can lead to uh, its own set of problems, such as segregation right? Um, the Muslims against the Christians, etc. Jews were the chosen people. The Jewish people is the chosen people. So as soon as you start dropping back, you go back to tribalism and then you get tribal warfare. Uh-huh. And then the globalists will use that as they are by creating, you know, segregation of, you know, Black Lives Matter, um, sex differentiation and, and, and causing, you know, all that toxic sexual, sexual, stuff and then uh-huh. giving kids the rights to make decisions that only adults should make about what their gender should be or whether or not they should get vaccinated. Uh-huh. So you, you see a complete breakdown happen. So, you know, it's a real journey. So to close the podcast, I, I, I would like to share an approach that is part of the system of alchemy I developed and it uses the Ohm cycle. So a, I awaken. We can't awaken until we recognize what our problem really is. 
this is called the blackening stage. That's when we're, we know something's wrong, but we're not sure what's really going on. Like you knew something was wrong at a certain point in your physical, your football career. Uh-huh. But you didn't really know how to fix the problem. Right. You had people saying more drugs, more surgeries. And part of you was saying, this isn't working. So you, you, you have to get to the yellow stage, which is, ooh, I'm awakening to my dream. What is my dream? But your dream wasn't working anymore. Mm-hmm. So there's a dream transition. And we, we go through dream transitions as we grow and mature spiritually. And then we go to the integration phase, which is, mm, that's the fruit. Now, how do I make this work for me? And then finally we have union and we have completed a cycle of our evolution. Mm. So what we'll do is we'll start with Ebb, the football player, mm. and I'll say, what was the crisis? So what was the matter, the problem when you came to a crisis point? If you could use a few descriptive words. Mm. Physical body's not doing what it used to okay, do. body breakdown. Mm-hmm. Um, what else was happening? What was happening emotionally? The escape valves weren't bringing me relief anymore. Right. So, um, um, what would you say the more dominant emotion began to be as you're, as you're coming to the, realize the crisis you were in? Anger, frustration, hopelessness, Desperation. How about fear? Fear, absolutely. And say fear was the prevailing, was the the bedrock of it all. Yeah. I can't do what I know I'm capable of anymore. Yeah. Like you said earlier, my body, like my psyche had this blueprint of what I'm capable of. Yeah. And my body's incapable of expressing that. Yeah. So it creates a, a, a breakup of the self. Uh-huh. There's a self-crisis there. Yeah. If you used a word or two to say what was the dominant mental state there. Despair. Okay. And what would you describe your spiritual state of awareness at that time? Very low. Like I'm in it alone. Okay, so that's I consciousness. Uh, yes. I. I've got to figure this out. I need to work harder. I need to be better. It's on me. The weight of the world on my shoulders. Yeah, so alone in it. Alone on the battlefield, basically. Yeah. My job as a therapist is to help bring awareness to what, the actual crisis is okay so you know so how the problem affects your dream your dream at that time was to play professional football right Mm -hmm. so we'll do a double process here dream was pro football but now i want to ask you what's your dream now my dream now yes (laughs) what gets you out of bed every morning what gives you the strength to manage the challenges of the real work of love to cultivate 
love and acceptance in myself to bring about more peace in my life. Okay. So, we look at this, let's tra- tackle this one at a time. How was the problem affecting your ability to be a professional football player when your body broke down? Mm. I wasn't able to continue realizing this dream of playing football. So you have a, we'll simplify that to a loss of agency. Loss of agency. Your self-crisis was also producing a loss of agency, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. So that's just repeated. Um, the despair, how was that affecting your ability to be a professional football player? My ability to be successful on the football field was always linked to my belief in myself. Right. So here I am, my body's broken down, I'm feeling I'm, I'm doing everything I can to cope with this loss of agency, working harder, giving it everything I have out on the field, and the results aren't the same. Yeah. So it's this despair is creating this heaviness, this weight on me of I can't do enough to be what I know I can be. I'll use a my own encapsulation for that. We're going to call that a concept reality gap. Mm. The concept is I'm a professional football player. The reality is I can't I can't wear the suit. Mm. Mm-hmm. I can't I can't fill it up anymore. Uh-huh. Right? The Michelin yeah. man cannot inflate himself anymore as a metaphor. How did it affect your dream when you realized you had to figure it out for yourself and work harder? It didn't. Uh, it didn't work very well. I was, I, you know, fell just deeper into the awareness that I didn't have it anymore to be successful in the football field. Hi, everybody. I sure hope you're enjoying the podcast. As a therapist that is constantly teaching people about nutrition and hydration, I found that the only people that really understand and use electrolytes in general are endurance athletes. But what most people don't know about is the importance of electrolytes for general health, mineral nutrition, improved hydration, blood sugar and insulin regulation, enhanced vitality, and enhanced brain function. Though there is a rising awareness of electrolytes and many companies offering them, I can assure you that they are not all created equally, and what that usually comes down to is the quality and the cleanliness of the source materials and how they are combined. Having tested many electrolyte products, I was honestly shocked when I experienced Paleo Valley's essential electrolytes. Why? Because I eat a super high-quality diet and back it up with the world's highest quality whole food supplements to guarantee a full spectrum of nutrition, and I'm a lover of high quality salts, so I thought for sure I was getting enough electrolytes. When I tested other electrolyte products, I honestly felt no difference. When Paleo Valley sent me their essential electrolytes to test, I was honestly shocked at how much more energy I had. I even experienced an improved level of mental clarity that I didn't expect from an electrolyte drink of all things. Paleo Valley's essential electrolytes are available in orange, watermelon, and lemon-lime flavors and is a whole-food-sourced electrolyte blend. 
get the complete benefits of trace minerals and electrolytes found in unprocessed ancient sea salt, organic coconut water, and seaweed extract without the refined sugar and synthetic ingredients in most electrolyte drinks. Though Paleo Valley's essential electrolytes are good for children and adults, I feel this product may be one of the most important dietary additions for anyone age 50 and beyond because the benefits that essential electrolytes offers addresses many of the problems common in aging people today. In fact, I've been adding them to my daily health and performance shake since the day I first tried them and will continue to do so. To get your essential electrolytes and save 15% on your order, go to paleovalley.com forward slash check 15. That's P-A-L-E-O valley.com forward slash C-H-E-K 15. If we want to make the world a better place, we've all got to stay healthy and fit and support companies like Paleo Valley because they're a perfect example of the kinds of companies we'd need more of in the world today. Enjoy Essential Electrolytes. Okay, so now, as a therapist, if I was coaching you at this time, now we go to the integration stage and we are going to practice the solution. Okay. Now, if I was there when you were in your professional career, it would be very different because now you're beyond that career, uh-huh. right? So, I'll do two things. We'll, we'll we'll take this, pretend that I'm there coaching you and being your therapist, so you can fulfill the dream of being a professional football player. Uh-huh. Which I'm a few years late, <laughs> but then we'll look at this from a larger perspective. So, when I see this loss of agency, body breaking down, anger, etc., then the practicing solution is to um, take the time to effectively. Restore ebb. There's no way around it, is there? No. No way around it. There's no way around it. In (laughs) fact, if I was your therapist and they said, you said to me, Paul, if I take the amount of time you need to rehab me, I'm going to lose my job. Mm. And I said, I would have said to you, and I've said it to many professional athletes, you got a choice. Mm. Mm -hmm. Pretend you were a golfer. Mm Mm-hmm. Limp your way through the season and it'll end your career or blow the season off, spend a year doing rehab and play 30 more seasons. What do you want? I guess I'm taking a year off. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Yeah. Right? I'm taking the season off. Yes. Okay. There's a concept reality gap. So I would say to you, what? does it mean to be a professional football player? What are the qualities you have to have, right? How much strength do you have to have? How much mental toughness do you have to have? How much focus do you have to have? And how do you do that without damaging your relationships? Because without your relationships, you're disabled before you even show up to the field, okay? So we would have to close the gap. How do we close the gap? We look at ebb, now versus ebb in fullness. And we then say, here's where you're at. Here's where you need to be. And this is what we're going to do. We make a plan. 
And I would look at it physically, emotionally, mentally, and spiritually. And say, this is the practices we've got to do to bridge the gap. Because if I get your body in shape, but I don't change your relationship with yourself, you're not rehabbed yet. We're going to be right back. You're going to go right back to where you are. (laughs) Yeah. Right? Yeah. And if we don't grow your spiritual awareness, you're, you're still going to come to a crisis because your soul is not going to support physical growth without spiritual growth. Because all it does is lead to the excessive use of power and force, which deteriorates love at every level. And you're not married to that woman anymore, are you? No. Proof of my point. (laughs) Okay? Spiritual, figure it out, work harder. Integration, the practicing solution. Can you really figure something like that out on your own? No. No. So what's the key here? Grow. Coming to see Paul. Key relationships. Okay. So union, if you had taken the time to rehabilitate your body with the level of injuries and the type of injuries you had, including drug problems, what would you have mastered? Being a football player. A real one. A real, yeah, fucking... Perhaps a Hall of Fame all-pro football player. Yes. So I have a question for you. Why do you think your soul didn't guide you to that? That wasn't the big picture. Because what would have happened to you if you had made that journey and stopped there? Would you be the ebb in front of me right now? Definitely not. No. No. You wouldn't. You'd just be sitting on your money and drinking beer and fishing and watching football and <laughs> yeah looking out at the world going holy shit <laughs> it's all falling apart but at least i got enough money to carry me to the end uh-huh so there would be no spiritual evolution yeah okay yeah so um when we get to ebb in his fullness and he reaches mastery what does ebb do for the rest of the world uh-huh shows them how to be full uh-huh. and achieve mastery uh-huh when we get to key relationships and he masters key relationships, what happens to the stability of everybody in those relationships? Goes up. And then the family unit and the social unit becomes much stronger. Mm-hmm. And that, to give you an analogy, if you take a bicycle wheel, right? Typical wheels got 28 to 32 spokes. Mm. Call each one of those spokes a key relationship in your life, whether it be a pro football player, friend, a therapist, a wife, a husband, a child, mm. aunt, uncle, cousin, mother, father, brother, sister, etc. When our relationships are healthy, if anyone hits a bump, it attenuates the shock through all 28 spokes. Mm. Mm-hmm. Nobody carries it alone. Mm. That's why a they say it takes a tribe to raise a child. Uh-huh. The stress of raising a child is so much that in the culture that we're in, it destroys mothers. Uh-huh. It wipes families out. Uh-huh. And that's one of the dangers of monogamy, by the way. Mm. Because in tribes where there was the ability to share love and sex with others, then everybody was having children with other people, so everybody's children was everybody's child. And therefore, you have a wheel that supports forces. That's one of the main reasons I have two wives. And both of them will tell you, with the amount of work it takes to keep two kids real healthy, we often say, 
can you imagine being a single mother trying to do this by herself? Mm. It would destroy a person, mm-hmm. and it does. Uh-huh. And a destroyed mother does not set up a child for a very good future. Right. Okay. Okay, so now let's take this same process and say, this is ebb as an example or an expression of the world itself. So we've got a complete breakdown of the earth. Its body's breaking down. There's a lot of anger. There's a lot of fear. There's a lot of desperation and disappointment and self-crisis in the world, isn't there? Okay. So the first thing we got to do is become aware of it. Uh That's the yellow phase. We have to say, how does this problem affect our dream of having family stability and social stability? Well, the first thing you got to do is recognize it. Right, you can't. The devil you don't know, you can't do anything with. Uh-huh. So we have to say, okay, what is it that we're doing collectively that it's breaking our personal bodies down, our social bodies down, and the body of the earth down? Okay, so we could sit here and list them. Mm-hmm. Well, we got to get morality back into science. Mm, yeah, we have to unify religion and get religious differences uh, to be honored, respected, but not such that it causes. Um, segregation and battles Mm -hmm. so we have to start looking for ways to create a container of love and respect that allows everybody to do what they can do within the sanctity of their own home and their own practice Mm. without it being a threat to somebody else Mm -hmm. if you want to be a muslim and pray five times a day great Uh if you want to go to church on saturday instead of sunday fantastic Go go to church every day. Mm-hmm. Why not? Right? <laughs> okay. Uh-huh. We've we've got to go from selflessness to recognizing what the self is. Jung pointed it out. The little self is your wholeness of ebb. Capital S E L S E L F is everything that supports you. There we go back to earth, water, fire, planet, and each other. So we have to go to an awareness that we have got to protect the planet and our resources, or we're all dead. Okay, so the awareness is there's bigger problems than a virus. There's bigger problems than a banking bullshit crisis. There's bigger problems than a fake weather uh, greenhouse effect. Uh-huh. Um, the the bigger problem is us. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> Collectively. Yeah. Right? And our spiritual awareness is that we can't do it alone. We have to do it together. Okay? So then we say, okay, what have we got to practice together? You had to take the time to effectively restore your body. Mm-hmm. We have to take the time to effectively restore our body of the planet and our body of eat, of ourselves because we have no agency if we're sick, broken down, and tired. Yeah. So paradoxically, we have to remember the model of I, we, all. You can't love somebody else more than you can love and care for yourself. Uh-huh. And you can't love the world more than you can love yourself because... By the time you love yourself and the key people in your relationships, if there's nothing left to give the world, there's nothing left to give the world. Uh So every one of these things, this is why Jung was so focused on the concept of individuality. Uh He said the individual is the functional unit Uh of any society or culture Uh or family. So if you don't bring people, this is why Native American tribes had rites of passage. If you didn't step into manhood and learn how to sacrifice yourself when it was important to do it, then you would never be able to support the tribe. 
So if we don't have enough love and respect for ourselves to keep ourselves healthy and maintain agency, we have no agency in a we or an all relationship. Mm-hmm. So the paradox is we, we need two things at once. We need the 12-step meeting to build the wheel. Mm-hmm. We also need the commitment to our individual spoke of the wheel. Yes. Or we're not going to make it. Yes. Okay? So, and we, there's a lot of despair in the world, but there's also a lot of wise people in the world that have been through a lot of these types of problems and know how to get us there. So the problem is, is we got to get the idiots off of television and get the wise people on television. Right. <laughs> you know, isn't that just the bottom line? Yeah. yeah. We, we, we've, we've just got to stop putting money into and putting attention into the very people that are um, being glorified for their pathology. Uh-huh. You know, that's, that's a problem. And then spiritually, we have to expand our sphere of awareness by taking care of ourselves and knowing that we can't do it without the help of our key relationships. And that those key relationships keep extending themselves to the world. That's what six degrees of separation means, doesn't it? Right. So, um, if, if you took your 32 favorite friends to make the bicycle wheel, and I'll show you how this works. So you draw a little bicycle wheel. You got a hub in the middle, and we're going to say there's 32 spokes in there. So I'm going to say, okay, Eb, you're one of them. And then you got Cat. She's right next to you, right? Your girlfriend. And then take another friend and another friend and another relative and another relative. And so we build your circle. Mm-hmm. Okay. And then I say, okay, ready for this? I say, okay, good. Now let's <laughs> go to Cat. Who's important to Cat? Mm. Okay, because there's going to be people that are important to Cat that are not on this wheel. Mm-hmm. Aren't there? Yeah. Good. So Cat's going to have a wheel too. And then there's going to be people in Cat's circle that are not on that wheel. Uh-huh. So you see what's happening? Uh-huh. This, that's what spirituality is. Uh-huh. Spirituality is this progressively expanding sphere of awareness. Uh-huh. And what is the awareness? The awareness that we need each other. What is that? That's love and action. Mm-hmm. Okay. So ultimately what we see is that we have to start with ourselves, but we can't do it without getting help from our key relationships. Mm-hmm. And within every one of those key relationships, there's another wheel with people that need help. And as we reach out to and share resources and share knowledge, time and the healthy ones can sacrifice for those that don't have the time, energy, and resources. I mean, you get a guy like Bill Gates. Okay, there's, last estimate, there's a book called The Web of Meaning by Jeremy Lent, and he says that approximately, what's the number? It's well over 2 billion people that don't have water or food or a place to poop, pee, or call home. Okay, there's over 2 billion people on this planet. Right now, 4 billion people on this planet do not make enough money to meet their daily survival needs. Bill Gates has enough money to feed and educate every one of those people Mm -hmm. across the board. Uh Okay? So, what I'm telling you, you get Elon Musk, Bill Gates, and a few of these other guys that actually own the brainwashing network Uh to say, let's invest in real education and clean up the soils and, and... get farming back to what it could be, etc. 
And there you have the effective distribution of wealth and resources for the betterment of all. But when you get a rogue psychopath that turns into a black hole that sucks resources into itself at the expense of everybody else, not realizing they're ultimately killing themselves Uh because they're destroying the web of life and the web of meaning, Mm. right? Mm -hmm. But in the meantime, we've got to stop putting money in their pockets. Right. Okay? So what you see is that, and the point of this and I could easily put myself in there because I went through the same crisis mm-hmm. multiple times now, <laughs> is that every one of us is going through this archetypal journey, right? And you could say, here the warrior gets broken and has to fall back into the child position and needs people to support him. But when he's healthy, he becomes a warrior, but he's a warrior with greater awareness because he knows what's important, uh-huh. okay? Once he's a warrior with greater awareness and knows what's important, he succeeds to become a king, and then he educates and supports the people in his domain so that they accelerate from child to warrior to king more efficiently, which means to get more conscious of what reality is, and then we graduate to the wise men stage, and the wise men are the people that are supposed to be circling the wisdom back here. That's why in Native American societies, where the hunting and gathering could be done typically in three and a half hours a day, three to three and a half hours, all their survival needs could be met. While the parents were out hunting and gathering, the elder people with the most life experience and wisdom educated the children through song, through crafts, through singing, through dancing, and through memorization of their myth and their rituals. And they use the wisest, most empathetic and compassionate people to raise the kids because it's tough to raise and educate kids. They're hard to control and you can't put them in a school desk and expect them to read books because they're not designed for that. That's how you screw a kid up. But you can get them to dance and sing and play and tell stories and act things out. And that's what Steiner's whole Waldorf school system is built on. Right. Right? So, ultimately, to conclude... Would you agree that the same path that you've gone through, if applied in mass, would bring the world at least to the level of spiritual development, appreciation, love, and respect that you have inside of yourself right now? A thousand percent. I guess we know what we're both up to then. Yeah, yeah. I, I guess we both know what our mission is. Yes. So, um, and look what your dream is. Your dream now is cultivating love and acceptance to create more peace. If we make our dream cultivating love and acceptance and creating more peace, instead of more fame, more money, more power, more control, and more dominance, I think we'll be okay. Yeah, I agree. I think that's what you're here doing, isn't it? That's it, brother. Me too. Anytime I look at it, I'm just like, that's all I'm doing. (laughs) That's all I'm doing. (laughs) It's all I'm doing because anything else it's the opposite of an anti-aging program. Uh-huh. <laughs> it's, the, it's a rapid death program. Totally. You know, it's 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 dating the devil. Yeah. It's playing with fire. Mm-hmm. So yeah. what a great journey. Yeah, man. Thank you. Quite a quite an amazing thing, all of it, isn't it? Uh-huh. It really is. I mean, yeah, it's, and it's I don't beyond think, words. Yeah. I don't think we're too far down the rabbit hole. I just, I think we don't have a lot of time to keep 
jerking off. Yeah. It's time to pull our head out of social media distractions and, and digital fantasies and get right back to reality. Because remember, the problem is whenever your ideas and beliefs do not are not congruent with reality. Mm-hmm. So I think it's just a reality check time for everybody. Absolutely. Yeah, I felt that myself. Definitely received that download insight many times of we're at the crossroads of we don't have time left to fuck around. Yeah. It's it's do or die right now. Yeah. And the doing is really about doing less. Yeah, learning how to love. Yeah. Learning and that starts with learning how to love yourself. Because like you said, if you can't, the only capacity you have to love other people is the amount of, is the capacity you have to love yourself. And the greater that that is, yeah. the more you have to give. Yeah. And, you know, put simply, be your own God. Mm-hmm. And I don't mean that in, yes. in, in a way that's disrespectful of God. Uh-huh. I mean, until you worship your own power and your own agency to love and nurture and care for yourself, you're never going to be able to do that for somebody else. A thousand percent, yeah. You know? And if you know what God is, then you know what's breathing you. And the reality of it is, you get to choose what kind of an experience you want to share with God. <clears throat> I think God's got plenty of experience doing <laughs> stupid shit. Yeah. Uh, plenty of experience with war. Uh-huh. Plenty of experience with taking shortcuts. Yeah. I think it's time for us all give to God give God a, a little bit more of a novel experience. Mm. It's called let's wake up, hold hands, sing, dance, and detox together. Mm-hmm. And I think we'll be okay. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for sharing your journey, man. It was quite a powerful experience. Thanks, brother. Thank you. Thanks for for receiving it. Oh, it's it's, it's one that I've experienced many times yeah. not not only in my life but a lot of professional athletes it's, uh-huh. it's, and you know everybody else business moguls and yeah it's 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 a here it's an archetypal journey right? yeah and so w- w- give us a quick rundown on what you're doing now and where people can can engage you yeah absolutely um i've got my podcast the ebb and flow that's a love that title. And you wrote a book <laughs> called Ebb and Flow. Yeah, The Ebb and Flow, Basic Tools to Transform Your Life. You can, that's on Amazon. There's uh, How to Love Yourself. Yeah. And uh, you, that's streaming on all platforms, the pod. Um, and then been doing a lot of events. I've got my event in person. It's called Heal and Flow. Good. It's a two-day yoga, breathwork, ice tubs, great food, community, um, products that I love, everything, just tools, practices, ideas to help you live your best life, to be well, to find love in yourself, cultivate love in yourself. And then uh, a couple times a month, I do online zooms live ebb and flow sessions which is breath work yoga and a guided meditation and you could find all that on instagram at eds britain uh that's on instagram and tiktok and my website ebbinbritain.com you could find all that stuff e b or e d e d d is in david yeah my name's eben daniel smith britain oh okay good i was confused that maybe i heard you wrong there no no yeah so uh, that somehow that became my <laughs> my handle. But so it's, it's E D S. My three first initials, Britain. 
E D S Britain B R I T T O N. Yep. Good. And uh, that's about it, brother. I really appreciate you, man. You too. Thank you. Yeah. So thank you to all of you. I hope you guys can see that we're all in this together. Yeah, and a thousand percent. I think it's time for us all to, you know, as my buddy Laird Hamilton says, sit quietly under a very tall tree and get clear. <laughs> Love that. Yeah. 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 It's that time. It is. And um, thank you to my sponsors for all your love and support. Thank you to any of you for buying anything from the sponsors. A little bit goes to me to help me do the work to pay the team to make the podcast, find the guests, do the research, and all the work I have to do to run a successful podcast. And thank you guys for being here with us because, hey, we need each other. Eb's, Eb's story is a very factual accounting of how we need each other and uh i'm grateful for all of you and remember my rule if you love the podcast share it if you don't it's our secret and uh i'll have something fantastic for you next week go check eb out he's a cool dude i love him it's like being next to a grizzly bear that gives good hugs <laughs> see you next time thank you Eb. thank you paul bye-bye Thank you for listening to Living 4D with Paul Check and today's guest, Eben Britton. Make sure you grab a copy of Eb's book, The Eben Flow, Basic Tools to Transform Your Life, available in print, ebook, and audiobook formats from Amazon.com. You can listen to Eb's podcast, The Eben Flow, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and all your favorite podcast platforms. Follow him on Instagram and Twitter at Eds Britton, that's E-D-S-B-R-I-T-T-O-N, and on TikTok at Eben Britton, that's E-B-E-N-B-R-I-T-T-O-N. And you can stay up to date with his events on his website at ebenbritton.com forward slash upcoming dash events. Catch up with Paul on Instagram and TikTok at paul.check, on Twitter at paulcheck, or on his YouTube podcast channel, youtube.com forward slash living4d with Paul Check. Watch more on Paul's blog at paulchecksblog.com or visit the Czech Institute site at checkinstitute.com to find Paul's e-learning courses, advanced training programs, and to learn more about the Czech Academy. You can read the show notes and find links to the resources mentioned in this episode at checkinstitute.com forward slash podcast. This podcast would not be possible without the support of our premier sponsors by Optimizers, Paleo Valley and Organifi, and our newest sponsors, Ned and Wild Pastures. Please show your appreciation by taking advantage of their special discount for listeners. The links are in the show notes. And finally, if you enjoyed today's episode, please consider leaving us a five-star rating and a warm review at the top of the show page on Spotify or at the bottom of the show page if you are listening on Apple Podcasts.